He just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Have you checked the children? them the blood of human sacrifice must come from them the blood of expiation <laughs> Hello, friends, enemies, and general well-wishers. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and what you're listening to is the first episode of a new limited series, Randall and Mel's Month of Halloween Hell. Mel, please introduce yourself. Hi, uh, I'm Mel Castle. I'm not even going to do a middle name nickname (laughs) for these because I'm going to be holy myself. As I yeah. hope you will be too, Rock and Randall. Yeah, this is not. I almost left the rocking off because I'm just like, you know what? This isn't the Losers Club. But, but you're always rocking. I'm always rocking. I can't stop. <laughs> uh, so okay. So this podcast throughout the month of October, Mel and I are watching one horror movie per day, and every Wednesday through November third, we'll be discussing what we watched that week, the toll of watching it, and whether there are any mental grand- and physical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And whether there are any grander truths to be gleaned, will there be guests? Yeah, yes, there will, but you'll have to wait because there won't be in this episode, which is our first episode, which is free to all of you lovely people who are listening right now. You will, however, need to become a $5 patron of the Losers Club podcast, a Stephen King podcast, uh, which is the pod Mel and I call home. You'll, to hear the rest, you can do so at patreon.com slash thebarons. There you'll not only find this podcast, but hundreds of hours of Stephen King adjacent discussions, digressions, commentaries, and analysis. Although we are not discussing Mr. King today. Uh, I think we're here to discuss horror movies. Um, So, and I think we're going to have a lot to discuss here. But Mel and I, before we get going, we're going to each ask each other a simple horror-themed question, uh, just to sort of uh, grease the wheels, as they say. So... Come on. Okay. Greasy. Greasy. Did you ever see the Greasy Strangler when that movie was a thing? Is that your horror related question for me? No. No, it's that's my horror related question now that you've done yours. That's a bonus question. Uh, Anyways, it's disgusting. It's only scary in that how gross it is, but I thought it was pretty good. It came out like five years ago. Okay. Uh, What is it, Mel, that you want from a horror movie? What is it that I want from a horror movie? So I feel that this week was pretty stellar for the lineup of horror films. I guess I should clarify that Randall and I are approaching this in a way where we haven't seen the vast majority of the films we will be watching. This is a first time watch for most of them. We're going to do one rewatch a week. um, And then also we're going to make sure that we overlap on at least one film a week. So we'll have mutual things to say. Though the opinions might not be mutual, we will have watched the same film. so I, I say that this week was stellar with a, with a real um, delighted attitude. I think that a lot of the movies this week gave me what I want from horror films. 
which is um, a deep sense of societal unease and <laughs> um, also personal unease. Um, I, I think that the best horror films do hit both. I think that they make us reconsider how we think of ourselves individually and also how we move around the world outside of ourselves. They have a sort of ripple effect that way. And, and I think that they can expose how the two lenses are paradoxically intertwined, that they seem like impossible to exist and, and together in a way that can produce sanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think the horror movies we watched this week, some of them had like a lot to say to me. Um, I, I, I cast that personal, uh, that personal, slant on it um because you know not everyone's going to have the same interpretation um but i think i think i just look for that i think i just look for a deep affecting i mean it can be discussed but it can also it can also be like a lot of these had really beautiful moments too um yeah or moments where the grotesque and beauty really kind of flip-flop um and i love i love that shit too that's why i like body horror um, I call the other side of it body wonder because it's kind of like what can the how can the body be broken? What can the body do? Like yeah. these kinds of dichotomies. That is a really rambling, meandering answer. I was like, we should improvise the answers to these and not think <laughs> of them in advance. And like that's what you get when we do that. <laughs> um, no, I Randall, liked it, Randall. What do you want out of your horror? Well, I think before before I answer that, I just want to ping pong off what you're saying a little bit, just because I think like we both. Our both of our first weeks were filled with movies that we mostly really liked, if not like really, really liked. And I think that's because uh, I think it's exciting because it's the beginning of October. We're doing this experiment. It's like 31 horror movies in 31 days. Like that sounds like a really fun project. And so I think like the excitement of beginning it, I think, led us to choose movies that we knew we would like to some degree, or at least we at were least really we were excited about. Yeah, that we were excited yeah. about. And um, and that's something I sort of consciously tried to steer myself away from in choosing next week's movies, which we'll reveal at the end of the episode. Uh, because I think I was, I was like, I can't just choose movies that I'm excited about. I want to like challenge myself to watch something that maybe I think will suck, but it could surprise me. Mm. Um, and so... Yeah, and I think um, I so I think we're gonna have similar reactions in that uh, there was there was a lot to take away from the stuff we watched this week, and we shared one movie, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which we'll be talking about. But um, but yeah, and then at the end we'll also talk about whether there was sort of any unintentional thematic uh, connections between the movies we we chose, whether intentional or unintentional. And I'm actually really excited to answer that because I found that there was a really strong connective uh, thread in between them all, which was totally unconscious. Some tissue. Yeah. So um, I guess my answer is I find that the horror movies that I love the most tend to not feel they, they, they in some way deviate from the template um of most studio horror. They don't feel like three act structures. You know what I mean? They don't have the same sentimental beats or character beats that a lot of, um, you know, just traditional screenplays have. I think a lot of horror movies that I enjoy kind of uh, move to the beat of their own drum and in doing so serve to disorient in their own kind of way. I think Mm. that's something that, that I like. And I think sir, is especially true of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is the first movie we're going to discuss today. Uh, Mel and I watch this together every week again, as Mel said, we're going to, we have one, maybe gonna, two. Wait, what's not, that, Mel? You're not going to ask 
your question? Oh, yeah, no, I do I have, have another. I have, or do oh, I yeah, have, you have another question. I have another question. question. Okay, before we talk about Henry, so Mel, Mel has a question. Mel erasure. <laughs> Sorry, I got excited to talk about Henry. Ask me your question. This is relevant to Henry. It'll be a good and even better segue. Randall, yeah. do you think it's possible to have to have good taste in horror or bad taste in horror movies? Um, <laughs> I love this. And the thing is, you know, I think everything in me wants to say, um, like, no, it's not possible to have bad taste. But the thing is, like, I judge people for their taste in horror movies all the time, um, including people who I love. Uh, but <laughs> perhaps like, most I, harshly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I think um you know, and I th- I think for me, you know, I think if we if if we think about like horror Twitter, right? Like the people who are most popular on on Twitter who talk about horror, which is hashtag horror Twitter. Uh they seem to love everything. I feel like there's not a critical bone in any of these people's bodies. And and that to me just dilutes and flattens horror to such a degree because I think horror is really about extreme emotions for me. Um sometimes I fucking hate things. Uh that doesn't mean I think they're bad movies necessarily, but they just don't uh check the boxes of what I'm looking for in horror, which relates to the last question. Um I think I always want to be surprised when I watch horror movies. And I think sometimes, um, uh, um, you know, I saw this debate on Twitter recently too, about the idea of what is scary and what is spooky, right? Like there's a distinction between the two uh, and spooky is almost an aesthetic, whereas scary is something that we feel. And I think sometimes people just like spooky movies because they like things that sort of fit the aesthetic of Halloween, but don't really challenge them. And um, so I, I think I do judge people and think they have bad taste in horror if they don't actually want to be scared, you know what I mean? Like, or want to at least challenge themselves in in watching something that uh, I think can encompass um, the totality of horror, which is not simply just like feeling a shiver up your spine, but being genuinely horrified. Um, I think that there's so much nuance within horror uh, in terms of the emotions that you can feel. Like sometimes horror excites you and it gets your heart racing in a fun way. Sometimes it makes your heart do backflips in uh, kind of a queasy way. And sometimes it makes you feel like shit afterwards. But the Mm. thing is like the movies that make me feel like shit afterwards are often the ones that I like really love. And I'm going to talk about one of them today uh, because I think, I like horror because it does make me think about, like, I like how you mentioned societal sort of uh, fears, but also personal ones and the intermingling of the two. I definitely think that a lot of my favorite horror movies um, capture a grander terror, something, a more existential terror um, that can complement the personal. And, um, And I think that like a movie doesn't need to be quote unquote epic to achieve that. Oftentimes I think the quietest and most um, unnerving kind of horror movies, uh, ones that, um, you know, that don't have the traditional hero's narrative or hero's journey or, um, or a traditional hero. I mean, we're about to talk about Henry. So I think that's a good, um, uh, you know, lead in there. But I, how about you? Like, do you think people can have good or bad taste in horror movies? You just said so many good things that I want to like erase my former answer to what I want out of horror (laughs) films. And I want to touch on surprise and I want to touch on extremity of emotion. Um, Like I hate it when people are horror fans and they complain or they, they complain when people, they think they're so cool because they, they quote, don't get scared. Right. Like they're like, I, nothing scares me anymore. I, I can watch anything. That's why I like horror movies. And I watch horror movies because I scare easily. I watch them because I want to feel that extremity of emotion that you're talking about. Um, 
I had a friend who took a horror class with me in college and would often joke like just to feel something. (laughs) Yeah, man, I get that because that's Um, the thing is I don't get scared. Like, I mean, in in fear of being someone that annoys you, I don't get scared too often in horror movies. I wrote a whole piece for the AV club. We're done. Uh, No, hold on. Like a couple of years ago (laughs) where I wrote about how the way I would like scare myself was I would read horror stories on Reddit. And that's the shit that would actually scare me. But the thing Mm. is, I was being a little bit hyperbolic when I wrote that. Movies do scare me. And as evidence of that is the ones I watched this week, which did scare me. But to an extent, we are chasing a high. Like, yeah, we're chasing a low and a high. It is. Yeah, it is an extremity, though. Like, Mm. I think that's why I bring that up, because a lot of times I need to be sort of rocked to my core to be scared. Um, And that can just be a single moment. It can be a single image. But um, and sometimes it is the totality of a narrative. Um, I find that that's less the case um uh rather than an individual shot or scare or moment that's the kind of stuff that like that's the thing is a horror movie can be redeemed for me and i can love a horror movie if it has one or two really like things that make my heart backflip this will be interesting to talk about because i do think that they're yeah we'll we'll table that put a pin in it um surprise i love that you mentioned surprise because i feel that what i want out of horror movies is to be on either intense end of the spectrum of surprise i either need to be very surprised and being taken on a journey into the unknown and exploring something that is so suspenseful and i don't know what's going to happen next and i'm i'm thrilled by the originality and i'm thrilled by where it's going and i'm surprised by where they've taken the conceit or i need to be on the exact other end where there is like a deep familiarity that has been like stirred up from the muck of the soul mm-hmm. and it's like it's like surprising and how unsurprising it is. And you're yeah. like really kind of shook by like what you recognize that has been twisted on the screen before you into a version that you might've thought was unrecognizable, but then all of a sudden you're touched and you, mm-hmm. and you know, the touch, you know, you know what I'm saying? Okay. That's, that was my amended answer prompted by <laughs> Randall, but as to the question of, of taste, um, yeah, I think you can have good and bad taste. I think those things are real. I think uh, it's hard to find objectivity that is measurable to everyone on the same scale, obviously. Um, but yeah. I, I take great pleasure, and anyone who listens to our our father podcast knows, I take great pleasure in being a snob, um, in being a <laughs> hater. Um, that is something that I don't wish to change about myself. And I, I think... It's just part of also what makes a personality magnetic to me is people that have strong stances on things. Um, So I think it's possible to have good or bad taste in horror because that's the world I want to live in. And the people that I want to interact with are people that that want to take a strong stance on films that are already taking strong stances by portraying extremities of emotion. Yeah, Um, 100 percent. Yeah. I, we could get into what we think constitutes good and bad taste, but for now, I'll just say, I think that'll come out over the coming weeks. What yeah, our individual I think that's, tastes are comprised of. I think that's something that can serve as sort of a, an undulating wave beneath everything that we're discussing that will probably surface and surface again as we, as we talk. But um, so yeah, Henry portrait of a serial killer. We watched this together last week. This is how we kicked off our month on October 1st. We uh, ate pizza and watched <laughs> Pizza, I pet your cat. Um, and we 
watched this movie, which is was made in 1986. It was directed by Tom McNaughton. It stars Michael Rooker. This is an interesting movie. Um, it's based, it's based, I was going to say loosely, but not even that loosely on, um, the life of Henry Lee Lucas, who was a serial killer. And although it's based on stories that he told about all the murders that he had committed. And the thing is, he was one of those guys who basically would claim any dead body that came across his table. He's like, oh yeah, uh, I totally did that one. I did that one, yeah. And um, there's even a story about how detectives at the time uh, would wanted to clear up, clear off their like caseload, you know? So they would take cold cases to him and he'd say, yeah, I did that one. And they could be like, okay, cool. Uh, solve that one. Wow. Serial yeah. killers suck and so do cops, ladies and yeah. gentlemen. <laughs> And I think like the actual, um, uh, in terms of evidence, in hard evidence, they found three that he had killed. Uh, although they said it could have been many, many more, but in terms of hard evidence, those were the ones they found. He was a very untrustworthy narrator. And, um, and but he did have a friend named Otis, Otis Tool <laughs> um, in real life. And uh, Otis here is a character. And this movie basically follows um, Michael Rooker's uh, Henry, uh, who lives in Chicago with Otis, who, who played him. He was really good. Um, uh, Tom Towles, very good. I liked him a lot. They live in Chicago and um, they live in an apartment together. The movie begins with... Uh, uh, his Otis's sister, Becky, played by Tracy Arnold, who has just left her abusive husband and is coming to stay with them and kind of gets swept up in their orbit, but not their murders. Um, and yet, essentially, anyway. we should say yet. that we will spoil every movie on this list. So like, if you haven't watched them, maybe don't listen to this. Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is definitely a podcast for people who have seen these movies. So, um, so yeah, Henry, doesn't really have a you know three act structure it doesn't have kind of the plot that one might expect of it we are basically stuck with these three people um and becky obviously has you know a good heart but she is not a protagonist uh, we follow henry um who might take issue with that oh okay then uh oh yeah i mean i guess you're right uh, if we're talking about the breadth of it but um but yeah so what we're essentially following is the murderous antics of Henry and Otis um, and the slow revelations that Becky has in terms of um, uh, their di- in, in sort of uh, disrupting their dynamic. Um, yeah. So Mel, broad thoughts about Henry. Uh, did you like this movie? Randall, I ended up loving this movie. I was scared to watch it. Um, very sincerely scared in a in a personal way just because it has such a reputation right people are like I mean Mike was texting us like it's filthy like you guys are gonna (laughs) like (laughs) um I know it's one that my dad has teased um before and and kind of been like you have to be in the right space to watch this movie right and your dad um, told us to fasten our seatbelts. He did. He sent me a text that was like, fasten your seatbelts. My dad also was at the original 86 showing of this movie at the Music Box Theater, part of the Chicago Film Festival. Um, we we didn't really mention this, but like, maybe you'll get into this too. It was made on a shoestring budget, like 100K, yeah. um, shot in less than a month. <laughs> and um, so that's part of that filthiness. What? It, so I, yeah, I ended, up, um, I ended up really, really thinking that this movie was doing something special. Um, I have a ton of notes on it. I realized in writing these notes after seeing it that 
maybe I um, shouldn't be doing a podcast. Maybe I should just be like writing long essays on these movies. <laughs> um, but I don't know how deep you want to go here right right now. I mean, what did you think? What did you end up thinking? What was your end opinion? Well, yeah, I was, um, I think genuinely, I was also scared to watch this um, because, you know, when I was young, I was petrified of horror movies and of gore. Mm. Um, and it took a long time, I think, for me to overcome that. And then obviously we're attracted by the things we're scared of often. And um, that attraction and once, repulsion, baby. Yeah. But I think that even as I got into horror movies, there were certain ones that I always kind of, you know, would hear whispers about. And I would say, well, those are kind of off limits because I just don't think that's my my thing. You know, movies like Martyrs or Serbian film or and then, I, you know, you I would get like Martyrs. Henry. <laughs> I never seen it. I, I need to. Oh my God, um, you should put it on the list. Yeah, I might do it this month. Um, but then Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer was always on there because, you know, one of the things I heard was that it was grim and unrelenting and it wasn't the kind of movie that, um, you know, there's no hero in a movie like this. And not that I need heroes. Honestly, I love movies that don't have heroes, but that makes it a little bit scary. I think the impression of the film I had going in was this was a movie we were just going to follow um henry around as he murdered people like we i were I worried we were like oh is this the equivalent of just like you know a replica snuff film are we just going to be watching <laughs> you know a narrativeless juxtaposition of him going about his day with these snapshots of the victims which is which is how it starts and i was worried that was going to be literally the entire film yeah that we were just and cut from him yeah. going about his errands snapshot to like a dead woman yeah and that's kind of how the movie begins. And it's it's really Becky's character that sort of allows there to be some kind of narrative spine. That, but also, because, I mean, the Otis narrative, who Otis is essentially a scumbag, his friend from prison. Who really once loves he, a scumbag. I love a good scumbag. And once you <laughs> find that he, once he discovers that Henry sort of is a murderer, he says, hey, that sounds fun. <laughs> so, um, like, that's I mean, there's of, a little bit, there's a little bit of him being, there's a little hesitation, but then he, when he gets into it, he is, he's full in. Yeah. And uh, so you do get these like scraps of narrative, but um, which is nice. And I think that they do help, but, but yeah, I was like, there's the sequence, the infamous sequence where um, they murder uh, the family, the mother, the father and the son mm -hmm. um, in which one kind of long on sequence. Video in the movie yeah yeah it has like a found footage kind of quality uh to it and it is extremely disturbing and i think that that was the scene i was prepared for and that's the one i'd heard about a bit and so i expected the whole movie was going to be variations on that i'm glad it wasn't because i think that would have been exhausting and punishing um and it's not as if the film gives us a lot of feel-good moments, but it does allow us to sit with Henry and Otis in quieter moments. And I think the thing that I took away most from this, um, well, I guess the first thing is that I couldn't not think about William Lustig's Maniac uh, while watching it. Have you seen Maniac? I have only seen the Elijah Wood remake. Isn't I've never weird? seen that. Yeah. The I used to be really scared of the VHS cover that was in my dad's hidden horror cabinet. And I would, <laughs> I would open it and look at it whenever I needed a jolt of fear as a child. Like that there's a, just a silhouette of a man holding like a, a scalp or a severed head. It's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this sort of serves as the other side of the coin to Maniac. This came out a few years later and um, it's a cold portrayal of a serial killer. It refuses to sanitize the behavior of a serial killer. It's not trying to make them look um, mysterious or cool. Um, and it's also, you know, I think one of the things people love about Maniac is it sort of represents pre-Giuliani New York City um, when Times Square was scummy and disgusting. Um, so you and think Henry is Chicago's Maniac? Uh, yeah, to a degree. I mean, I think 
I certainly don't think that, um, because it's not as if I like the, the neighborhoods that they frequent in Henry, uh, have been to some degree gentrified, uh, since then. But I think there's always going to be those pockets of the city. Like maniac is so specifically about, you know, the times square, like when Mm. it used to be all sex clubs, this portrait of Chicago is a bit more sprawling, but it does capture the grimy side of Chicago. And, um, but also just kind of like the cold sterility of certain areas of Chicago. One of the most memorable murders in in, um, and Henry happens on Lower Wacker, which is sort of a very confusing stretch of road that goes beneath several bridges uh, right downtown. And there's a scene where they pull over and pretend they're having car trouble. A guy gets out and they just shoot him and then drive off, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and one um, of the things my dad yeah. brought up when I talked with him briefly about this film is that he he thinks the car is one of the scariest elements in it. This like snot green car with a rotted out undercarriage that we spend yeah. so much time in that is that is just this kind of like vehicle to, to personal hell and or harm. Um, and now I like retrospectively, I now agree like that car is, is freaky. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think for me, it's that idea of the charisma killer, you know, mm-hmm. that I think I'm, I'm left with. I think Rooker's incredible. In I was going to say he is, but he's, I wouldn't say that he is, um, the character Henry is particularly beguiling or charming or, I mean, even Becky falls for him because I think she is, you know, uh, drawn to, you know, I think uh, tough guys, um, things of that nature. She obviously comes from a marriage that was rough. I don't think she has the, you know, perhaps the best radar for good men, but also he's there and he's attractive. And um, and Rooker is attractive, but I mm-hmm. think in a rather unconventional way. Um, although, man, I would kill for his triceps in that movie. But, um, <laughs> I, but didn't I even notice his triceps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I couldn't stop looking at him when he, when he was uh, when he was with that He likes jacket. a hunk. He likes a scumbag a and a hunk. And when the two get together, he got... And that's man, that's Rooker in a nutshell. And so, um, but there's the scene when Henry talks to Otis about not having a modus operandi. Like he essentially says, you know, I don't do patterns. I don't allow people to, uh, to know who I am or whisper about who I am. And I think one of the narratives we often get about serial killers is that they love leaving clues or they love people to know that they, um, that there is one person behind all this and obviously that's true in real life and we have the zodiac and um uh you know many other killers or even the manson family uh things of that nature it's i think that um the way that we view a lot of killers is there's a baked in narcissism there there's an attention-seeking quality they want to be known Mm -hmm. and i think one of the most unnerving things about henry is he doesn't want to be known um he's explaining to otis how to get away with it he just likes killing people Mm -hmm. he doesn't care about the notoriety of it all he just likes killing people and i think that speaks to the sort of lack of mysteriousness around that character i mean Mm -hmm. we we've we've made we've made serial killers. Um, and this I think speaks to just the general, um, you know, climate right now. And I think I'm seeing a lot of people saying my true crime obsession is problematic now, you know, which I don't know if I'd go that far. I think people are perhaps overcorrecting after, you know, spending the last five years or whatever, binging. I'm really interested true in that crime question. Podcast. Sidebar. Yeah, I, I, think I agree. Parts of expressing it can't, can be problematic. Um, oh, but. sure. Yeah. I mean, it all kind of culminated, I think, lately with this, um, the Gabby Petito story, who mm. the girl who disappeared, um, the van it's life true. Everyone was like, America's obsession with true crime is now 
problematic and we have the case to prove it. Yeah. I mean, well, it was just the stories that were coming out were so they were just like, it was like a feeding frenzy in terms yeah. of how many different ways can we cover this? And, and it was so, I think it was just kind of a culmination of, of this happening over and over again. But I have seen a lot of people essentially saying like, um, I feel bad for obsessing over serial killers. And I get that, but I do think it is a natural impulse in people to want to understand evil as it exists. I mean, pure evil. And, um, and, you know, so I think the thing with Henry is that uh, he resists a lot of the ideas that we associate with serial killers, which is that they have a grander purpose that they're doing this for something. Like you think about Chris Dorner. I mean, Chris Dorner, the cop who killed several people many years ago, he had a whole manifesto he left behind. And there are some people who, and I know this sounds fucked up, but it's true. There are some people who think that he was a hero. Same with Elliot Roger, the incel who killed uh, several sorority girls many years ago. He's a hero to incels. Um, there's the Columbine killers. There's people who worship them. Uh, Zakhar Sarnev, the Boston bomber, people worship him. And part of that has to do with the message, that they had a message, that they felt like they were doing something. Um, but also the fact that some of them were attractive. You know, like Rolling Stone put Zakhar Sarnev on, um, on the cover of their magazine. It was a photo of him and he looked attractive. Zach and Efron's it, out here playing Ted Bundy. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's the thing. And that um, with these things is uh, a lot of these killers come packaged with narratives. So I think when we're talking about Henry, that's what unnerved me the most was that this was somebody who uh, just likes killing people and has no grander, you know, I mean, they, they leave in some of his backstory about how his mom would, uh, who was a prostitute. And this was true of the real Henry Lee Lucas, at least according to his telling was sex that she, worker now. Oh, sorry. Sex worker. And uh, would dress him up as um, a girl and make him watch uh, her have sex with Johns. And, um, and I mean, yeah, you can do the psychology thing, but uh, we never see, we see Henry tell that story, but he never says that that's the reason he is the way he is. Um, you can infer that if you want, but to me, he seems just like a sociopath, you know, so, and that's the scariest thing of all. Uh, so anyways, I, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. What do you do? Does any of that make sense to you or totally. did you respond I, to that? Yeah. Yeah. I really love when you said, that the scariest thing about him is that he doesn't want to be known. Yeah. Um, that's such a great observation. Um, I'm gonna, I'll try and be really fast. I'm gonna hit my notes. Greatest, greatest hits here. Um, I, I do think that the Rooker's like individual character work in this film is like really great, really amazing mm -hmm. that to, to speak a little bit on what you're touching on, Henry is, is not an individual. He's actually a conglomeration of all of our worst fears about serial killers wrapped into a single package because he kills indiscriminately, he kills compulsively, um, he, but he's clever enough to avoid any detection. He knows how serial killers work from the outside. Um, for him, there's no deeper symbolism. As you're saying, there's no narrative. It's just the phrase, it's us or them, right? He yep. just likes killing. Um, there's no sexual element for him, though, as you mentioned, he has this alleged childhood trauma that was sexual. But even that trauma, like Henry, is itself a greatest hit selection of elements that we've been told go into a serial killer. Right. Yeah. So his story of how he murdered his mother changes that we're certain that he, he probably did kill her, but we don't know how. And the how is actually what tends to matter to most serial killers. It's part of their pattern. It's part of their signature, as they call it. Mm -hmm. Um Side note, um, did the Dark Knight's Joker take the shifting scar story conceit from this film? Because I think it did. Um, and of I wouldn't course, be surprised. 
he's not based off a real serial killer. He's based off a real, a real serial killer's dream of being the perfect <laughs> serial killer. So he's a serial killer crafted from the outside. He embodies danger and all kinds of senseless violence non-specifically. He's, he's a walking allegory for everything that a serial killer means to America or Chicago. Mm. And then yeah. we look at the other characters. Likewise, Becky, she's the ultimate victim. She's a woman whose trajectories lead her only to violent men. Sexually abused by her father, she goes on to marry an abuser who we later learn has murdered someone and been sent to prison. Her brother continues the pattern of incest in her family by raping her and Henry ultimately kills her. She planned to live with her mother and her daughter, but it's unclear how safe of a haven that would actually be, given that it's the same mother who refused to acknowledge her husband's abuse of Becky. So in the same way that Henry is a conglomeration of all the traits of serial killer, Becky is sort of a conglomeration of all the traits of serial killer's victim. Mm, And then finally, I, I do think Otis is a symbol too. Like he's the hapless follower in a serial killing duo. That's the weaker link. He'll ultimately blow it for both of them, right? Cause he's not, he's just not as in control. But more yeah. than that, he's also a left behind, formerly incarcerated, impoverished person. And he has no hope of extricating himself from that status to get back into the system. I, I think the scene with his parole officer is so crucial and really genius. Yeah. It's the clearest and most well-lit shot we get of his awful teeth in this close-up right before his parole officer says he has to cut their meeting short because his kid is getting oral surgery. <laughs> I was going to bring so, that up. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we get the system has abandoned Otis for good and it's no wonder he becomes warped by the only people available to him. Yeah. So I, I think that it's funny that this is called portrait of a serial killer because it would be a very blurry portrait. It would just be a portrait of the idea of serial killers all across America if it wasn't for Rooker's incredible acting. And that's what I so enjoyed about the movie is that it took characters who could be read as wholly allegorical stand-ins for entire populations. And it forced them into this filthy real world container. And it gave those allegories to actors who could shrink their blurry bigness into these small touchable and and touching people. So you, you actually feel for everyone in this movie, I think. Did you, I mean, do you agree with that? Do you think you feel for everyone? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that, um, like, when you say feel, like, what did you feel about, like, you can, when you say you feel about Otis, do you just mean that you can recognize that this is somebody for whom the system has failed him, and he has, he basically has no hope yeah. of ever, yeah, like, he's going to go down the route where he is welcome, and there are very few routes where he is welcome. And and the thing is, he's already an impulsive person. He's going, like, that's the thing is he is chaotic. Like, whereas Henry is restrained, like Otis is extremely chaotic and can't control his impulses. So when he gets thrown into this world, he goes in head first and, and you know, Henry has to tell him, like, calm down. <laughs> like, not yeah, yeah, all. yeah. I, you're, you're, that's a good kind of um, course correction in that you're not feeling, you're not like, oh, Otis, I wish I could be there to talk with you, right? You don't actually want to get near Otis, um, but you do feel, you do recognize his situation. And I think, I think ultimately this is a movie about being unable to escape no matter who you are. And it is the banality of being trapped, the certainty of that cycle that frightens us. It's not the shock of the murders or the grotesque ways that they're executed. It's the matter of factness of them, that feeling that there's they're like tick marks on an endless cell wall. And instead of Henry's murders on the wall, you could substitute Becky's abusive men or the days until Otis's next transgression. When you're trapped by 
your cruel influences, the people that have been cruel to you. And then subsequently by society's hierarchies, of course, it feels like us or them all the time. Um, so I just thought that this was, you mentioned this too, the sort of banality, the matter of factness of, of this movie um, yeah. is what gets to you. Well, I think too, like what you're saying, it's, I think a lot about we have $50 to buy a TV and getting scoffed at. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way that to me speaks to the larger idea that these are people without means and I can feel for them in that regard because that underbelly that they have found themselves in, that apartment, which you described as looking like it's from a Nine Inch Nails music video, <laughs> like um, that to me, I think speaks to, like, I think that's why the, the, the setting is so important. The idea of living so deep within this griminess that um, it's not as if there are other routes available. I mean, obviously there is the route of not killing people, but there is the idea that these but are the people who have does, been- it, it, convinces you that that route is cut off for Henry. He actually doesn't have the option of not killing people. <laughs> sure. Like really to stop killing people, he'd have to kill himself. Like, I think that is yeah. his trap is that he's a murderer. Like Yeah. Well, he's been surrounded by things of that nature his whole life. And I think that's like what it speaks to is, is, um, you know, and this, this relates to other movies on my list, but uh, just the idea that there are, you know, there are echelons to society and the ones at the, the bottom rung of it. Uh, if you're born there, getting out of that is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that's the world that these live in. It's just such a hopeless world. I mean, Becky is, it's, it's tremendously sad the way she talks about like wanting to go see her kid and see her mom. Like there's just a doomed quality to all of it. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, that leads to the ultimate question, which is why watch it? I know, right? <laughs> Which is what we asked. I asked after we watched it. And I think for me, it's like there is something edifying about it, right? Like um, this isn't a particularly fun movie to watch, much like another movie on my list that I'm going to discuss. But I will say that I come out of it um, feeling shook in ways that that um, that horror movies don't always do for me. And I love that feeling of being shook. And I love, uh, I think, like witnessing the coldness uh, and the the cleanness almost of uh, Rooker's performance here. It, it's something that gets in your bones more so than something, than somebody who's playing uh, like somebody like Otis, even who is so over the top. Um, mm -hmm. I think that there is a restraint and a POV in this movie that I don't see in a lot of other movies. And for that reason alone, it sticks in my craw and it, and it, I find it edifying. It makes me think about um, horror and crime and killers and completely different ways that, I, you know, and I think that's the thing is, I think there's, um, I think people who feel as if they've, they need to atone for their years of listening to true crime podcasts, just watch this movie because it'll remind you that murder is not glamorous. You know? Like for like, anyone, for anyone on any side of the equation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing about this is it's sort of, uh, you know, and again, this, this movie is very closely tied to another movie on my list. I, I'm going to echo a little bit of what I say later, but there's that whole idea of that, um, this stuff is 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 completely unglamorous and uh the majority of murders are not you know serial killers and things of that nature are not um these enigmatic personalities but rather just deeply twisted people who want to inflict pain on others and um there's nothing mysterious or glamorous about that you yeah know? i had a professor at at iowa who used to be a journalist and has interviewed serial killers and i remember at a bar one night he went on um this sort of 
it was not a rant or a tirade. It was a sort of exasperated uh, conversation where he was like, there are no Hannibal Lecters. They kill the people that no one cares about that will be forgotten. uh, And that's why they don't get caught. It's in the victim selection. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'll always remember him being like, there are no Hannibal Lecters. (laughs) And I think I agree with you. Um, I also found it edifying. As a movie that I think, again, is about being trapped um I, I I wanted to appreciate that sentiment that trapped feeling and to feel it from multiple angles like it was this sort of glorious yet mundane horrifying intersection of that of that trapped sensation from every character in the movie um to see how we're harmed by what people do to us and how we replicate that harm when no recourse is available to us um, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's ugly um, and important and it, and it feels real because so much of it is yeah great i think it's time for our next movie okay mel what did you watch on october 2nd i watched john carpenter's 1980 movie the fog and i saw it on a big screen i was at the logan theater at 11 p.m showing uh on a on actually a foggy night it was kind of kind of appropriate atmospherically so why hadn't you seen the fog up until now this is a it's considered a pretty classic carpenter movie is it? I mean, I think so. I'm not, um, I'm just not as dogged about my movie consumption as I think most of the pod bros are. Um, <laughs> I call them the pod bros. I don't know if I've done that publicly on the podcast yet. Um, but I call all of you the pod bros. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, sta- it wasn't a standout on my list. Um, but I saw, it must've been a poster or a still or something. And after seeing In the Mouth of Madness last year, um, I really wanted to get some Carpenter on here for sure. Um, and I liked it. I would say it was my you know, second to last on this list. There's nothing offensive about it. I, I just think um, it's got a great little conceit. It's got great scenery. It's got wonderful people in it. Adrian Barbeau's first movie, um, I think she was Carpenter's girlfriend at the time. Uh-huh. And I, I really loved certain elements of it. I loved every time that someone would turn around and there would just be like the silent standing silhouettes of the dead manners. Yeah. Uh, that was really effective, really awesome. I loved the lighthouse scenery. I love the scene where Barbo kind of cl- is climbing to the top and these dead leper, leprous people are clamoring after her. Um, but I, But I do think like, Oh, I love the radio. I like that she's a radio DJ and that she's kind of like warning the town as things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it just seemed a little, a little half-baked to me. Like it seemed to want to invest in the, in the history of the town being corrupted, but that really wasn't seeded very well. That the history of the town was like super, super important to these people, even though they're having the celebration. Um, I, I felt like every time we made a discovery, it was the first time we were getting any information about the mystery at all. This is harkening back to our bag of bones episode. Um, like there's this priest reading the journal throughout and it, it's like, we don't have a mystery to solve. We just get answers as they occur right. to this priest. Right. Um, so I, I kind of was like, yeah, this was a fun, this was a fun little detour into the fog. I, I kind of wish it was either longer and more loaded up, had a, had a more sense of its like had more of a sense of, of where it was going from the beginning and, and did a little bit of that seeding. Um, or even it could have been more intimate. Like I, I actually would have loved it if it was 
focused only on like Adrian Barbeau as the radio DJ and then her like long distance flirty weatherman lover as they like navigated this horrible thing that was happening to the town, even though they'd never maybe even seen each other. And then they come together at the end. I don't know. Now I'm thinking of a different movie. Fully original. <laughs> I would like it if it was concept. a completely different movie. Um, Roger Ebert said, this isn't a great movie, but it does show great promise from Carpenter. And <laughs> I, I might agree. I don't think it's a great movie. I thought it was a great time. I thought it was a fun time. And yeah. Yeah. What do you, you've seen The Fog. So what do you think? I have. I saw for, I've seen it twice. The first time I saw it, I was in college and I thought it was kind of dull. Um, when I saw it on, I saw 4K restoration at the Music Box here in Chicago, uh, probably about two years ago, maybe three years ago. And um, I loved it a lot more then. And I think what works about it for me is that I agree with you. The story-wise, I think that is definitely uh, down the list in terms of its appeal. To me, it's it's a movie of, uh, of, of moods and feelings and images. Um, it's a movie where I remember very specific tableau. You know what I mean? I remember figures in the fog, glowing eyes. I remember... Um, the idea of things emerging uh, from um, and 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 this kind of great atmosphere, this this like oceanside atmosphere. Yeah. I think that it's 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 all about the mood. You know what I mean? And um, and so yeah. I think that doesn't that doesn't forgive its. Uh, I think because uh, I I remember too being underwhelmed by the story. It just kind of like it feels as if that was not very much of interest to Carpenter either. I think he was more interested in the ensemble, uh, which I enjoy. I think it's got a fun ensemble. I mean, you get a little uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. uh, um, She's great. She she is looking great. Uh, I did also read that they added like a full third of the movie in post-production or like they they had turned in a version and then he was like, oh, it's not, people are loving the gory movies these days. So we need to put in kind of more action-y gory scenes and, and make it, I don't know, more appealing to those people. I want, so I wonder what that earlier version looked like, although Carpenter hated it. Um, <laughs> but I agree with you. Like, I wish it had just kind of leaned into being a really atmospheric, surreal trip instead of like something that was trying to do a lot of story at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I'd say I enjoy it overall, but it, it's not a movie I run out to see necessarily. I mean, I think Carpenter could be good with story sometimes. I mean, I think you know, but I mean, I think the simpler his stories are, usually the better they are. Uh, mm-hmm. Halloween is a great example. Um, but I think with <laughs> a man uh, who kills, <laughs> yeah, it's such a simple story because he really does thrive in terms of uh, cultivating striking images, uh, strong characters, and a strong atmosphere. Um, that's the thing I love about Halloween too. Is it you know kind of turns this suburban block into this uh, street? You know, this um, I don't know this like terrifying corridor and. Uh, the fog, I think, works for me in sort of that atmospheric sense. It's kind of like uh, Big Trouble on Little China, which is a movie that I I've seen it once only, but I can say it's a beautiful movie to look at. But it's fucking gobbledygook. Like I have no idea what's fucking going on in that movie. But it's nice to look at. But I don't know if it's necessarily a movie I'd I revisit love, a lot. I love Mouth of Madness. Yeah, Mouth of Madness is a fun one. I mean, having Sam Neill at the front is is always good. Um, that one he, he does lean into the atmosphere. Like yeah, that's the approach I wanted. Right. Um, any other thoughts on the fog? No, it was a good palate cleanser after after Henry. Henry. Yeah. yeah. Randall, I mean, what it's... movie did uh did you watch 
on October on o- 2nd. On October 2nd, I watched Carnival of Souls, 1962, directed by Herc Harvey. Uh, this was the only movie uh, Herc Harvey directed. Uh, he tried to launch a few others, but he was basically a guy who made educational videos, like technical videos. And um, and uh, Carnival, in Carnival of Souls, like, I think the reason he wasn't really able to make other things happen throughout his life was uh, this movie was not celebrated until I think the 80s was when it kind of had its reappraisal. Um, this is the story of a woman who gets into a car accident. Uh, a car flies off a bridge with some of her friends. She is the only survivor. She comes out of the water and she takes a job as a church organist. And we kind of watch her life over the next week or so. And she seems um, adrift in the world. She's has trouble connecting to people. She's very irritable and uh, things don't really work out at her job. And throughout it all, she keeps seeing visions of um, a man with a very pale face. I think in the, the stronger restorations of it, like the 4K restorations of it, you can see how much of the the pancake makeup is on this guy's face but he's scary uh, though oh he's very scary and that's actually the director herc harvey um oh, and nice. he yeah and he was he, like i uh, know exactly what i want out of yeah. this. <laughs> but uh but he's terrifying and but he's basically haunts her uh she sees him in, in mirrors and windows and all of these things he see, she sees him at the bottom of the stairs waiting for her at the end she stays in it's very eerie and um and it kind of all culminates with this uh abandoned um what's the word i'm looking for uh pavilion basically uh she keeps having she's fascinated by it and that's kind of the idea of where the movie came from was the very same uh pavilion um that's in the movie is one that the director saw and was kind of obsessed with it's this abandoned pavilion and that's kind of where things culminate in that movie Maybe it's with, haunted in real life i i mean you I, about that? Like, <laughs> I i love the idea of haunted places which is uh that will, prompt people to make movies yeah and that the thing is sick. my next movie is also that uh was prompted by a real place and so um but yeah i find this movie to be uh deeply unnerving it's it's not it's a slow burn i mean it moves like that's the tough thing about it is it's only 80 minutes roughly but i still think it's almost too long uh because it it almost becomes a little bit repetitive after a while because it's a lot about her uh seeing this figure uh and then meeting someone in the real world with whom she can't connect with uh that there's something wrong with whether it's the priest at the church, whether it's the other boarder in the boarding house she's staying in, who is very horny and wants to date her. And she finds She's herself- also scary. Those scenes are very upsetting. Yeah. But the thing with her is that's, that's interesting and complicates it is that she wants to be near him. She wants closeness. Uh, she wants like connection with another person. But then as soon as she gets close with any of these people, uh, she disappoints them in some way. Uh, at one point, she's playing the organ in the church after this one extremely haunting uh, sort of uh, surrealist uh, expressionistic um uh, vision where she's playing the organ the priest comes in and tells her essentially she's uh, blaspheming with the music she's playing and it's not clear why she's just playing the organ in the church but he kicks her out and fires her and says you know there's something wrong with you and it's the fact that we don't know like what it is exactly that's wrong Until with her is, is yeah we find out obviously in the end and I think it is pretty heavily hinted at i think everyone who's watching kind of has a sense of what's going on but you know when she goes out with the guy they go to a bar together and he's mad because she won't party she won't dance she won't drink and then he is like let's just leave and she's like no i want to be here with you but she is bored and she can't connect and nothing is working for her and 
that there's this pervasive sense of alienation, this question of um, why, why am I not fitting in with anyone? And uh, she says at one point, I don't belong in the world. That's what it is. Something separates me from other people. Everywhere I turn, there's something blocking my escape. And that's, I think, when you kind of layer that in with the behavior, I think that's what makes the movie really relatable is I've felt that way before. Like the sense where, why can't I connect with anybody? Like at certain times, my life. Luckily, I have the podcast now and we connect with, we all connect so beautifully. But, uh, but you know, there are times where I think you feel alienated from the, from the wider world and it develops this sort of great existential anxiety. Like, I don't belong here. And what the movie captures is this sense of disappearing from the world. Uh, like, almost a slow fade. I kept thinking about Back to the Future. Uh, like, when the person fading in the photographs. I and I- Back to the Future. <laughs> Oh man. Well, it's one of my favorites. Mike's really mad at me about it. Uh, yeah. And I was reading some reviews and there was a phrase used called fatalistic angst. Like, uh, and I like that phrase a lot. I think that speaks to it because I think ultimately what happens, um, and I think this is something most people probably pick on from the beginning is that she did die in the water. And as she's, um, and then in the end of the movie, it is confirmed that her body is, they drag it out of the water. And, um, but it's that idea that um, our soul is what allows us to connect with other people. It's what allows us to, uh, you know, develop our personality and exude that and um, form meaningful connections. And I think like the implication here is that she is a person without a soul. And, uh, and that's, I think, what infects her organ music for the priest, you know, things of that nature, which is uh, very, very unnerving to me. And she's being essentially pursued by these spirits who are saying, we want you, you know, the rest of the world doesn't want you. She's not alienated from her like crowd of crazy ghouls. Right. But that's, you know, obviously that's very scary i actually go with them yeah i actually called this movie a great precursor to final destination because uh (laughs) the final destination movies are essentially about you cheated death and now death is coming for you uh and that's essentially what this movie is i mean she didn't cheat death but death is essentially saying i own you now like come come on and uh and um and that sort of great existential anxiety is is really effective and also this movie the organ score uh i've already mentioned the organ a lot it was by uh, the composer gene moore and i find it so so powerful and like what really makes this this movie work for me is this just hideous like uh uh like squealing um, and haunting drum or uh, uh, organ. It's it's it really makes the movie. It's 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 disorienting and almost violent at times. But it, it is it helps the movie really achieve uh, this idea. And this relates to the fog, I guess, is that it's a movie of moods and feelings. It's a you know it's not necessarily about the story. It's about these moods and these feelings. And um and I think uh, you know the last fifteen minutes or so of this movie it's some it's just absolutely terrifying and it's a really because, scary film yeah because she starts to be confronted with these white-faced ghouls wherever she goes and there's a scene it's it's a gif uh, it's kind of a popular gif now and um uh which is so, so wild to say but it's like you know she gets on a bus at one point she's trying to leave town and when she gets on the bus everyone on the bus is this white-faced ghoul and they all are staring at her and they all rise out of their seats to meet her and she runs away and that's the last we see of these bus ghouls and the scene almost feels like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the scene almost feels like, wait, why was that there? But I think that's the whole point is she's seeing death everywhere by the end. And but I think but that shot alone is the scariest shot in the movie and one of the scariest shots I've ever seen in a movie. And um, 
And it really, really works on me in that regard. It reminded me a lot of actually the scene in Salem's Lot uh, by King when um, there's the school bus driver and the town is all turning to vampires and all the kids that he screamed at, um, the vampire children have all gotten on his bus and he like goes in, he's like, get out of my bus, you know? But it's then the white faced children like flock to him. And it makes me wonder if King um, was perhaps consciously or unconsciously thinking of this movie when he wrote that scene because it really speaks to it. So, so yeah, I was really delighted with Carnival of Souls. I, I, I cheated a little bit because I said the only one um, I was only going to do one rewatch. I technically saw this when I was in college, but it was at a party and there was a lot of talking and perhaps uh, imbibing of some sort. So I barely remembered it. And uh, so I considered this a first watch. But uh, so, what yeah, do you make of the title uh, like the, the organ too. there's like a calliope quality. There's a yeah. there's a circusy quality to what's going on. Is that just. Is that just spooky because um, it's a subversion of happy things? Is it just like... <laughs> I, I don't I don't think that there was much thought put into that. I think uh, I think the pavilion was either previously a carnival or um, would be a perfect setting for one. I think it's more so uh, he was really inspired by this pavilion and yeah. he wanted to film there and they were able to film there for only 50 bucks. And it actually, and it was fun to read about because this was so low budget. I think it was like 10 grand that he made this for. Um and uh, it was so low budget that they did a lot of like guerrilla filming where they would like film in a store without a permit and just pay off the people who owned it, you know, and they just film a quick scene there and uh, stuff of that nature. So, uh, so yeah, I think the Carnival of Souls is more so a catchy title and um, a reference to sort of this, um, uh, this place that he wanted to film. But, but I think sort of the, uh, the dancing, you know, the, the dancing that consumes the final moments of the movie, um, it has sort of a... Uh, uh, a celebratory feel and I think um, and a you know a sense of fun and joy and uh, I mean a, an eerie one but I think that sort of lends itself too to the the feeling of being at a carnival so yeah, so yeah it's a party yeah I mean in this movie you most don't want to go to <laughs> I know and I think that I kind of love the fact that um, it, it doesn't the ending doesn't necessarily feel sad to me it feels almost like uh, you know this is she's found her people you know, which uh, I guess is like, it can speak in some ways to like Midsommar, like why I love Midsommar so much is, is gen generally that idea of like, what can seem like a tragic ending on its face can speak to uh, the idea, well, this person, at least they have found their people, you know, and um, whether how, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. So, um, Mel, what did you watch on October 3rd? On October 3rd, I watched I, God, I looked up French interviews before this podcast so that I could hear how people said these people's names, and I'm still not going to do a good job, so I'm sorry. Um, Julia Ducournu's Raw from 2016, um, and I'll, I mean, I'll just get, I'll just get right in here. This is an A++++++ for me. This, nice. this has quickly become one of my favorite horror films of, of all time, wow. I will say. It is probably in my top five which wow. is at least currently you know that shifts all the time um and it wasn't it wasn't that when I ended it I was like that was really good I'll think about it some more you know like um and and over the course of the the next few days it it just this is not a pun but it consumed me <laughs> um <laughs> I, I thought that lots of reviews, this is actually really related to what you were just saying about Carnival of Souls a little bit, I think. Um, lots of reviews for this film throw around terms like coming of age and sexual awakening and puberty and female empowerment. Um, and, and I do think, sure, those elements are definitely in there. It's, it's a college story. You can't really avoid them, right? Um, but for me, 
This film functioned most beautifully as a story about the tragedy of enforced conformity, what happens to us when we're compelled to fit in at all costs. And I, mm. we get the first hint of that when, you know, it's set at a veterinary school. There are these awful hazing rituals that are going on to the new students. Um, they get blood poured on them, a la Carrie. They have to eat a raw rabbit kidney, which is what sparks the protagonist transformation into a woman with cannibalistic urges. Um, so that's already kind of like the world is horrifying to fit in. You have to do terrible, terrible things. Um, <laughs> and then we get this this great scene with um, a doctor that I could not find referenced in, in any of the reviews that I read. And the doctor tells Justine, the protagonist, this story about a patient of hers who was repeatedly denied routine testing because she was fat and, and therefore something other than average. They have this conversation about what it means to be average. Um, and she asks Justine how she thinks of herself, and Justine says average, but of course we know that she is she is not average, she is going to be a cannibal. Um, and the doctor kind of says, you find a quiet corner and wait it out. You know, you, like you can't be in the midst of this phrase standing out to people. She knows what happens when, when people stand out. Um, and, I, and I think the truest level of tragedy for me was how everyone's desire to conform in this movie eclipsed their ability to connect with the people who were freaky like them. So Justine and her sister is the most obvious example. They flirt with connection and communication and comfort, but they can't sustain it because they both want so badly to be normal. And her sister, Alexia, commits the classic move of the self-hating freak when she spotlights her sister's freakiness in front of everyone um, she makes her like leap and beg for a bite of a corpse while people are filming it and and Justine is really drunk and so Alexia is othering her so that she won't have to think about othering herself um, and we know that denying your freakiness never works right it's only in our fellow freaks that we can find consolation the sisters learn that lesson way too late one of them goes to jail and the very end of the movie was for me just like utterly successful and affecting um, Justine's father takes off his shirt and shows her his mutilated chest and implying that, you know, her mother is also a cannibal and they've figured out this way to keep it under wraps by having her kind yeah. of take chunks out of him uh, periodically. And it's at once reassuring and also terrifying because it means Justine isn't alone, but it also means there's no, there's no safety or refuge in that fact. As her father says, she will find her own quote solution to her urges. So he tempts her with connection before pathologizing her. And he encourages her to keep it under wraps her whole life. Don't share it even with those people who can understand. Um, so be, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Be a cannibal on the DL, right? So I think this movie has so much to do with, with queerness and kink and with aberrant desires, more than it has to do with feminism or puberty or coming of age. Though, of course, again, those things are there. It's all intertwined. Um, I, I love when Justine has like this really bite happy sex with her ostensibly gay male roommate. Both of them are indulging in a form of aberrance for them. They're finding pleasure and comfort in it, even as they resent it. And it's touching and it's really, really sad. That was but like those, my favorite scene when I watched so it. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cause you can, you can tell they're both like, you know, they're both into it, right? Yeah. Like, um, and I, I think those honest moments of expression aren't allowed to flourish in the real world of social and scholastic expectations. And you're supposed, you're supposed to choose an identity and a label and that can be vegetarian or it can be gay or it can be skinny or it can be golden child. And you're supposed to embody it without disruption as a part of a predictable group. And so, you know, we do our best to call her our, our contradictory, 
beautiful animal selves. And that of course only makes them hungrier and more dangerous. And that's what I took from this, from this movie after thinking about it for a few days and just kind of growing to love it more and more. The soundtrack, the imagery, the acting. Oh my God. Uh, just, it just incredible. I'm like obsessed with it now. Nice, man. That's awesome. It's fun to hear you so excited about it. I watched this movie when it came out like 2016 and I remember aspects of it. Like I remember specifically that scene you mentioned, um, the sex scene. Uh, but I, I, I remember really liking it, but I did not have like any revelations with it, you know, but I think that might be because I was probably tired and I was probably on my phone. So uh, I do need to give that one another watch. Uh, but before I do that, I'm probably going to go see Julie DeCarno's new movie, Titan, which has been a big hit Titan? at the festivals. Titan. Titan. And uh, I watch these interviews. It is currently playing in Chicago. I might go see it this week, so I'll let you know. Um, Because that so you've seen it, you you were like, okay, maybe I like to watch it again. I liked Raw. I just don't remember. (laughs) I I don't remember like much about it. It's hitting on that alienation stuff. I think maybe yeah, you'd enjoy it on second watch. Randall, what movie did you watch on October third? On October third, I watched. Gonjiam Haunted Asylum. It is wow. a 2018 South Korean found footage horror film directed by uh, Young Bum Shik. And uh, it, it was inspired by the real Gonjiam Psychiatric Hospital, uh, which is in uh, South Korea, where the movie was made. And um, which is purportedly one of Korea's most haunted locations. In the movie, uh, a group of people basically print, well, one woman in particular has printed out CNN's seven freakiest places on the planet. And I thought that was a joke in the movie, but it's true. <laughs> and uh, Gondrium is on that list. And so it's kind of fun. I think this this movie was in, in uh, was inspired by this list, which came out in 2012, uh, which is really funny to me. But um, I'll say that I found this movie because I was looking for some found footage that I haven't seen. I'm a huge found footage head. Uh, I have been since I saw Blair Witch in the theater. Um, You can listen to our crate episode about it uh, in the Losers Club Patreon, where I I basically call Blair Witch a perfect movie, which I stand by. And... um, Yeah, I'm a huge... But I said about Tremors for my crate episode. (laughs) I love Tremors. Um, So, yeah, but I... But the thing is, I have pretty strict, I wouldn't call them strict, but I have like things that make, things that I love, like what found footage, uh, what makes for good found footage for me. And this movie, I think accomplished most of them. It's a great latter day example of the genre. Like, cause honestly there was the boom around paranormal activity where they were just releasing them left and right. And the problem was they kept making found footage horror movies that clearly weren't written to be found footage horror movies. Uh, there's a Bigfoot movie called Exists um, that's actually from the one of the directors of Blair Witch. And this movie is, is extremely bad uh, because it's it's a found footage movie, but there's like, there's like a soundtrack and there's, you know, it's like there's slow motion and there's like all these things that are feature film things, but they don't embrace the found footage. Narr- like, yeah, the uh, Bay does uh, that. Concept. I hate it when that soundtrack came in. I was like, what are you yeah. doing? 
Yeah. And I, I mostly like the Bay, but for those reasons, the it's Bay is not, fun. yeah, it's not like top tier for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's a movie with Zach Gilford from, um, from Midnight Mass on Netflix and also uh, Friday Night Lights. I can't remember what it's called. I think it was called Due Date maybe, but it's about a couple on their, um, on their honeymoon. And that's also film found footage, but there's no reason for it to be found footage. It makes no sense. So I think for me, I really want a good reason why this is a found footage movie. And uh, this movie really embraces it because it's about a group of YouTubers. Uh, which I think also embraces the 2018 uh, sort of um, uh, time period who, you know, want to go viral and they want to do a live stream of, of this walkthrough of the Ganjiam Haunted Asylum. And they want to rack up, you know, essentially it's just, well, th- there's a really weird, like, uh, they're like, if we get one, if we get like a hundred thousand views or, or like, you know, things we will get $50,000 in ads. It's like the thinking. And I'm like, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> like, cause then they were, they were like, we, we wouldn't to- know. I mean, <laughs> maybe oh, I, know. It does. I know it's like, it's just very funny to me, but it's essentially like, uh, they want to do this um, walkthrough. So they get some volunteers to join them. We get like a crew of about six people who are going to go into this haunted asylum and everybody is wearing um, various cameras on their person. Uh, they wear these like shoulder harnesses. Did you ever see the show Fear on MTV back in the day where they would Maybe. have people, they would have people like go into extremely haunted places with like the camera that faces their face. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, you could yeah. see their face and uh and they would like have to stay there or do certain things. And if they did it, they were there like, any other funny. cameras or was it only their face the whole time? I think they had other ones. Uh in this movie, they have uh a, a GoPro facing front, one mm-hmm. facing their face, and then many that are uh you know placed throughout the this asylum. Sounds, this sounds dope as hell. Like, why hasn't this gotten a wider distribution? I've never heard of it. I'm yeah, I'm not sure. I was a huge hit in, in South Korea. Um, it's one of the highest grossing horror movies there. Wow. Um, and it does have a, you know, it does have like a following in America. I think people who are found footage heads like it, but I think this movie came out in 2018 and found footage in America at least is not very popular um, mm. at that point, especially at that point. I think that's like when VHS viral came out, which was, or that might've been a couple a year or two before, which was like a huge dud. Although I'm mm. excited for the new VHS because I like the anthology by and large, but but, um, but yeah, and so um, it's essentially about these characters exploring the various rooms, uh, the various floors. There's legends attached to various rooms, and we learn a Sounds little like bit a about haunted the house experience. <laughs> yeah, it's a haunted house experience, and um, and the characters are you know pretty you know pretty stock. Uh, we have like. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I'm not expecting- They're like a jock and like a- Well, there's like a tomboy, like of the three girls, right? There's like the, there's like a tomboy who's like really good with camera equipment, you know? There's um like a young medical student who's very, uh who's very delicate. And then there's sort of the brassy, uh you know, very confident um American uh, girl. Well, she's South Korean, but she speaks English extremely well and has like been to other haunted places throughout the world. Mm. But she's the one showing cleavage, you know what I mean? And then, uh, and then the bros are, you know, similar stock types, uh, but the women are, are the ones that stand out the most. And, uh, you know, and I think like in a lot of these things, the cynicism of trying to go viral sort of intertwines with the, uh, with the idea of the hubris of disturbing the ghosts, you know what I mean? In, a, in an effort, this selfish effort, you're sort of uh, kicking the dirt off some extreme trauma that happened in this haunted asylum. You know? ads, which is like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, but the thing is, um, I'm excited because you are going to be watching 
uh, Grave Encounters next week. Uh, which, <laughs> yeah, that's a mild spoiler. This movie is actually very similar. Um, and Grave Encounters was made well before this movie, but mm -hmm. they have relatively similar premises. Grave Encounters, though, is almost a direct uh, riff on the show Ghost Adventures, mm -hmm. uh, which is a travel channel ghost hunting show that I call Ghost Bros. Like you call me Pod Bros. Oh, wow. uh, this is Ghost Bros because it's, it's these big, beefy, muscular men who are like, bro, did you see that fucking ghost? <laughs> Easily my favorite ghost hunting show of all time because so it's Randall, like, what did you enjoy? I love this movie, this haunted asylum movie. Yeah, but I have to tell you real quick that I don't think I would love it as much if not for something like Ghost Adventures, which I think really set the template for this idea of uh, gaining clout by. Um, by basically like exploiting these haunted places. Mm -hmm. And now I'm not acting like that's a new development. I think like haunted places have always been a draw for people who want to make a quick buck, um, you know, like own this property, uh, sell tickets to let people in. But I think that idea of like turning a camera and putting it online, there's something craven about it. And I think that uh, Grave Encounters kind of dabbles in that same area. But I would say that this movie does it in, I don't know, a more compelling way. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that it's South Korean, um, it weaves in some things that I would just say that are, uh, you know, very specific to like J-horror, like certain horror tropes that we don't see in America too much, but that I've seen in a lot of sort of Eastern horror. And uh, and there is one that's- Wait, of is it K-horror or J-horror? Um, well, I don't- This one I is guess, Korean, right? Yeah, this one's Korean. The, I'm thinking, I think I'm just thinking of like the larger J-horror, yeah, 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 yeah. K-horror sort of movement. And, uh, but there's like, basically it makes you wait for it. Like a lot of good found footage because the thing with found footage is you can't really like, you know, you can't really shoot your shot right away. You have to sort of like, these are movies that usually explode in the final 10 minutes. And that's one of the things I love about uh, found footage horror is that it really makes you earn it. It spends a lot of the movie dabbling in what, what I would call peripheral horror, where the camera moves and you see something like in the corner of the shot or something behind a person, you know, but it's in that Shout final out to 10 Ghost minutes. Watch, which we will also be watching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ghost Watch is great. And um, it's, but that's like a great example of, uh, like this movie kind of does that, but then when it blows up at like right near the beginning of the third act around is, uh, is extremely surprising. Like I was not ready for <gasps> this. Uh, I would, I wouldn't call it a jump scare necessarily, but there is a moment when, uh, uh, you know, let's just say something happens and I gasped and then the rest of the movie kind of blew my fucking mind He's so being cagey because this is the first one that we i haven't seen so I yeah can't this is one i don't i feel like this is perhaps not as uh widely seen so i don't want to spoil too much of it how'd you watch uh, it with streaming it's uh okay it's i had to get a free trial for something called haya which <laughs> okay. is uh mostly kung fu movies it's like a channel on amazon hey, and uh bonus. so i got a free week there and then i've been watching some kung fu movies no i haven't but only because i'm watching horror movies but uh so i watched it that way but you can also rent it via amazon and oh oh uh justin told me it got added to shutter but it got added oh. to shutter like the day after i watched it so it's on shutter you're Anyways, a taste maker yeah highly recommended um i'm trying to see if i I have any other another thing i like about it too is just that um i think the thing with found footage is uh 
the more they try to sort, and I think this is true of a lot of horror movies, the more they try to explain the lore or uh, really get to the heart of like what exactly is haunting them. Uh, when you start to spell it out explicitly in any horror movie, it usually starts to lose some of its bite. Mystery is kind of the point. And um, the thing I like about Ganjiam, which speaks to found footage is with found footage, there's no omniscience, you know what I mean? Like there's no God eye mm-hmm. over this movie. Uh, like you're kind of confined to these POVs via the yeah, camera. The camera so, has to be human. Yes. So you don't, you often don't get the whole story. And I like that because it allows you to piece a lot of it together yourself. And this movie is a good example of that. Kind of I wouldn't rewatch Cloverfield. <laughs> I love Cloverfield. I've only, I haven't seen it in many years, but it, that's a good movie in, in that regard. But, but yeah, Gungium is one that um, I wouldn't say it reinvents the wheel or anything. Um, but in terms of found footage, I definitely place it near the the top of my found footage list. It is, uh, I think, and you know, and it plays because it really does. And I like, I like them too, the, as they go on, like the Bay is a good example of one that uses not just somebody carrying a camcorder, but it's like you pull footage from multiple cameras and kind of mm-hmm. stitch them together. That to me is always a really fun, uh, you know, conceit. The, the more technology we have, the more that we can play around with those various kinds of technology. So, so yeah, recommended with that one. Um, recommended no. from found, found hound Randall. That's found right. Short for found footage now. Mel, what other movie did we watch on October 3rd? Oh, bonus content, everyone. <laughs> you you are lucky. You got a whole other movie. Uh, Randall and I went to see Venom, Let There Be Carnage yes. on October 3rd. Um, uh, we won't spoil this one, but uh, I'll just say that I had an absolute blast with Venom. There will be Let There Be Carnage. Uh, this is a movie that has no no strains towards sentimentality or uh, pretension or profundity. This is a 90 minute goofball fucking action fest. And I thoroughly enjoyed it for that reason. Yeah, I went because I'm a monster fucker and Randall went because he's (laughs) just a regular fucker. I'm a regular fucker. Action movies. Yeah. Um, We had a good time. Woody Harrelson is is bonkers in it. chewing it. I love it. And Tom Hardy like slips out of his accent like five times and only makes the movie better. Uh, I could not understand movie... 50% of the dialogue in this movie. <laughs> and this I... is a movie that does not take itself seriously at all. And if you like, if you liked in the first Venom, the sort of interplay between Venom and, and Eddie Brock, like the goofy sort of uh, odd couple kind of quality, then you will like this movie because it amplifies that by like 10. So if you didn't like that, you probably won't like it. So <laughs> anyways, we'll move on. Uh, but yeah, uh, Venom, thumbs up for me uh i enjoyed that i promise we're probably going to be bigger haters in later episodes but in oh for one, sure we, we just we watched some, a lot i have of some stuff. hate in me I'm, I'm gonna let the hate flow through me in a little bit <laughs> all right good to hear good to hear mel what did you watch on october 4th um on october 4th i watched 2011's your next directed oh, by adam is it weingard uh i always Wingard? said wingard but wingard? Uh, it can go either um, way sorry adam um <laughs> This is not when I will be letting the hate flow through me because this movie fucking slaps. <laughs> this know, was I my rewatch of the week and I was so excited to get to it because I don't think I fully appreciated it when I first saw it in theaters. I mean, I had a good time, but watching it for the second time and appreciating how the tropes get flipped um, so that all of a sudden Aaron becomes the hunter and how even the filming and the music... Um, there's this one moment where you you are actually taking the perspective of one of the masked killers and it is just exactly where the film pivots. Um, it's exactly where it's on that like hinge. 
as he's like leaning through a window and you're suddenly like the jump scare is going to be Aaron. It's not going to be the killer. Yeah. Um, I love that just even from the beginning, um, my friend Ian put it as uh, you never doubt her. Her competency is never in doubt. Like she is just a really great character. She can play this like kind of doting girlfriend um, to her awful cowardly boyfriend. <laughs> um, and then she can also in that same range become this incredibly proficient uh, survival compound raised Australian badass. Um, and the moments of the masked killers even beforehand are are very scary. Like they incredibly, are effective. Incredibly, um, yeah. When that hand snakes out from under a bed that the mother, the matriarch has been put on. I remember being in the theater and like, very rarely do I actually gasp or scream in the movie theater, but that that got me. I don't like under the bed shit. Um, <laughs> the 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 synthy soundtrack that that comes in when she soundtrack's so good. Yeah, it's it's amazing um, when she takes control. I feel that the acting in this is superb. I read and and it made total sense to me that some of the scenes were improvised um, between the family. Um, I Ty West is in it. He gets an arrow through the head. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he's such a shitty actor, but man, he's a great director. Yeah, they were like, we have to take him out early. <laughs> <laughs> and then Joe Swamberg, also a uh, noted filmmaker, is uh, and Chicago filmmaker, lives right nice. down the street from me. Yeah, oh he gosh. plays the he plays the uh, the blonde brother, the one who his delivery of uh, he's like he's like, where's the Xanax or whatever? It always made me. Oh, laugh. he's, he's um, such a fucking. I know he's such awful an asshole. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just so fun. Like, I think it would be fun even if you had no idea about the tropes at play, but it's all the more fun if you have watched a few home invasion films. Even just the moment where she first, it's like pretty early on in the movie. The movie's not even halfway over. One of them breaks through a kitchen window and she stabs him in the arm. And it's, mm-hmm. and you hear him screaming from behind the mask. And you're like, that's, that's a little weird for a movie of this type um, that that's happening. I could not believe that when I read about this movie, some of the critiques that were that were um, leveled against it were that it was unoriginal. I just I just don't understand where that comes from. Like yeah. maybe it's not a uh, it's not original to have a presumed victim turn and be very kind of good at killing the people that are threatening. Like that's sure that's a trope, but I do think it's a really great take on the home invasion. Uh, um, genre that's what well, I'm I think, looking for well I think what really makes it stand out is that Adam Wingard was such a great like before he started making Kong movies or whatever like uh or he whatever was, <laughs> he was such a cool director like like the thing about your next that I think works so well and also it's follow-up the guest which is incredible I love the guest maybe even more than your next um it's they were such cool movies they had such distinct aesthetics and uh the scripts were funny and charming uh by Simon Barrett who's who's still working he's a director now as well um and uh the scripts were so funny the acting was so wry and there was such a sense of humor that kind of was strung through it all why the funny thing is after I first watched it the humor is one of the things that really stuck with me Mm -hmm. so when I tried to show it to my wife who is kind of horror movie phobic um I was like no 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 you'll like this like it's it's funny and then uh we got to I think the part where Amy Simatz like gets her throat uh, cut open she runs with the, out full the razor speed. wire like that and like everybody's crying over her body and my wife just goes all right we're done and I'm just like no it gets funny I swear and she's like I tried you to do... keep saying it's funny it's not funny I tried to do the exact same thing with my friend May who got like god bless her has tried to humor me by watching some horror movies with me she got 
so scared during Night of the Hunter. I should have known that your next was not going to work <laughs> on her. But, but me and my friend dragged her to it. And um, uh, yeah, I feel I feel bad for that. Because yeah. <laughs> it is, again, it's effective on the merits of being scary. Like, uh, I know. It, and that's right. what and I, it is yeah. funny, as you're saying. Um, I, I like... It, the blender to the head is like <laughs> is like almost too much. It's like it's like just pushing credibility, but like he knows when to back off. Um, yep. By yep. he, I mean Adam here. <laughs> um, yeah, just the way that it's able, the way that it's able to sort of uh, balance genuine terror and fear and gore with um like humor that's almost extremely broad at times. Like you just mentioned the blender, like the fact, and then also the Joe, when um the brother is getting killed and she keeps, or he keeps getting stabbed. <laughs> and like, he won't will you die. just fucking die? Yeah, will you just fucking die? Like <laughs> this that's is an really Austin hard Powers for me. Joke, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is really hard for me. I know like the way that the selfishness is played up with all these characters, mm. like how deeply selfish, even in the throes of like, like death, like in the face of death, they remain so selfish. And that to me is, is just really funny. Well, it seems and, so and, grounded yeah. in real family dynamics like right. i just feel like we all know this this family and yeah maybe one of them would pay like, <laughs> a million dollars to have people invade the home um yeah i love that movie yeah it's, I, it was yeah. such a treat it was it was a real it was a real lovely what was that um that must have been monday night tuesday i don't remember it's fine yeah um, and Randall, in keeping with the theme, but going a little bit darker, what movie did you watch on October 4th? I watched the 2008 home invasion movie to keep in line with you, The Strangers, uh, written and directed by Brian Bertino. Um, I, this was my rewatch as well. I had seen this one before with my friend AJ. We were really stoned right when it came out. Oh my God, don't uh, see this movie DVD. high. What are you thinking? Oh, I know. And that's why when I watched it last night, I was, uh, you know, sober as a bone. Stone cold sober. Stone cold sober. And uh, let's just say that um, uh, still very, very disturbing. Um, but this is one that really, really sticks with me. It's... It, and I, I find it really, really, really unnerving. And, um, you know, this movie is essentially about uh, a couple who comes back from a wedding and things You're are doing not- doing synopses. I haven't been doing synopses. I hope oh, that's it's okay, fine. everyone. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I think it, it comes It's nice through. to set the stage. <laughs> yeah. So essentially come home from a wedding, um, they, uh, things are not well between them. Um, and then somebody knocks on the door. They're asking for somebody who doesn't live there. Uh, they leave. And then in short order, suddenly someone is stalking them, many someones, and they wear very creepy masks. And essentially what we get from there is a, you know, I think, I'm, well, what I'm going to talk about is, is that I think when I looked back on this movie, what I remembered it for was the brutality. But the thing is, like, very few people die in this movie. Uh, it's it's just that the ending is so cold and unfeeling and unsentimental and uh, very Henry esque. It is, yeah. yeah, and and also just so clinical. I mean, the way that these characters are tortured in the end is just to be stabbed with a knife over and over, like, and slowly. Like, um, there's no, there's nothing like, it's like Henry, there's nothing cool or like, you know, it's not like, uh, Freddie, 
you know, smashing someone's head into a TV or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and saying, uh, welcome to primetime, bitch, or whatever. It's just this like extremely. <laughs> oh, they would never be so good. <laughs> it's just this extremely hollow um, and sad murder. Uh, well, what do just... they say? What's the famous line? Well, the famous line, which to me, it should be up there with like poltergeist work yeah. here. You know, it's uh, they, you know, Liz, so why, Liv are you, Tyler... why are you doing this? Stuff? Yeah. Liv Tyler asked multiple times throughout the movie. Why? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this? And at the end, they just say, because you were home. And um, that to me Jeff's is kiss. great. Yeah, line. it's incredible. And the script itself by Bertino is is really well done, just top to bottom, the way that he sort of sets up the relationship dynamic um, and uh, and um, and the background. I think just the exposition, the idea that this is his father's home um, and uh, uh you know, I think just like the the milieu, the world that we're living in, it's set up like so simply. And uh, and I think but I think what chills me so much about this one is that um, is that it's the inevitability of it. It's the idea that um, that there is, you know, in this world, there is no benevolent caring, loving God. It's like uh, horrible things happen to people for no reason whatsoever. Uh, it's a, you know, death is a random sort of thing. And I think this speaks a lot to post 9-11 horror. Um, just that concept of of um, death having no meaning because we've been so inundated with it. And we've been inundated in this culture where, you know, we repay death with death. And that relates to my next movie that I'm going to discuss as well. But, um, you know, when you look back at the old slashers, it's like, you know, people died because they had sex, because they committed sins, they did drugs, they drank, you know, they did whatever, there was a reason for it. There's no reason whatsoever for these people to be tortured and killed in such a horrible way, yet it happens that way. And there is no reason for any of it. Um, And I think that to me is, is, you know, and that is sort of the reputation of the movie is that it does sort of express that sentiment, which I think was something that, you know, a lot of filmmakers are scared to do because it's not good drama. You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, and even I think more that- so than like funny games, right, which is often referenced as like a very classic home yeah. invasion with a sort of meta element like this is like fuck a gimmick. Like this is yeah. just what happens when people want to kill somebody and are going to achieve that goal. <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, this is sort of the dour version of funny games. I think the thing about funny games is that um, it's so in your face. Yeah. Uh, it, it It's scolding you and lecturing you throughout, which I don't mind. I like funny games well enough. It's, uh, but funny games is a movie that essentially is saying you love this shit. Don't you, you know what I mean? Yeah, like we're back to our true crime. <laughs> You sick little fucks, you sick little piggies, you love this. Whereas The Strangers is really just about this more existential terror that um, that there is no, you know, benevolent loving God and that uh, um, evil goes unchecked in this world. What are are they fighting about? What are Liv Tyler and what's his face fighting about? Does it ever reveal? He he proposed to her and she she wasn't ready. Yeah. So I was going to say, I'm sure I read this in in some smarter thing than than my brain, but... um, it's interesting to me that I think there's three killers, right? And they sort mm-hmm. of mirror a nuclear family. There's like a mm-hmm. there's like a patriarch, there's like a matriarch, and there's like a kid. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's sort of I love that it's sort of disrupting, you know, everyone talks about like the um 70s horror is when it invades the home, it invades domesticity, it it disrupts the nuclear family. And here is one where it's like 
a kind of living in sin couple that's falling apart. They are not a nuclear family. They're a very modern representation of, of yeah. maybe sullied love and <laughs> this like corrupted nuclear family breaks into their home and yeah. Um, yeah. wants to kill him. Yeah. And uh- you know, it's a miserable movie to watch. It really is. I was it's, texting it, Randall like, I'm not, I don't envy you. I'm having a great time with your next <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, uh, and I think that's, but the thing is though, it was like Henry and that I felt edified after I watched it. I felt like I, and it, I also just think it really speaks to that time period that, you know, those, those years post nine 11, uh, this idea of trying to make sense of death and, um, and especially cruelty and evil in this world after witnessing something like 9-11. And um, so I think that, um, you know, I think for that reason, it, it it sticks with me and it stuck with me from my first viewing, but I think rewatching it, I liked it even more. Um, it Again, it's not one I'm going to revisit very often, but I think I was even just looking at these moments where like she, these moments where they all, like there's never a moment where they almost get away. And I think that speaks to, to the idea that, um, um, like, again, this is almost anti-dramatic in a lot of ways. Uh, again, like, and I brought up at the beginning, I like horror that sort of subverts the usual um, template, the usual act structures. This one, you know, by the time he gets to his car, uh, the tires have already been slashed. And then they try to drive it with the slashed tires to see how far they can get. <laughs> I know, but then instantly uh, a truck flies up driven mm-hmm. by one of the other killers and stops them. I mean, these killers are almost like like there's a couple moments where you see them where they don't know where like Liv Tyler is or where Scott Speedman is and those are interesting moments because you sort of see them in that process of looking and it's the most human we see these these three killers but by and large these are these preternaturally talented uh almost supernatural in their ability to be at the right place at the right time mm-hmm. to stop them and that's really unnerving too we never but, see them without their masks do we no in the original cut you did um mm-hmm. there was a, a scene after the stabbing at the end where they actually tried on some of their clothes or something and then you saw their faces and then they left but they cut that from the movie because uh the this is one decided, of the last yeah. i think to to kind of just take that conceit super sincerely after that things like you're next and hush would sort of would sort of humanize and and delegitimize the home invaders and kind yeah. of take take away that mask power. Yeah. Um, but I think as a final ish entry, uh, this it is really scary. Yeah, um, and I think it's that impersonable quality, the idea that there wasn't nobody paid them to be there. You know what I mean? Nobody uh, like there's it, it's not like they wanted revenge on this guy's dad or something like that. It's just completely meaningless. They were home. Yeah, they were home. And that's so fucking scary to me because it's like, it just, it's one of those things where you can't look at it and say, well, that could never happen to me. You know what I mean? Because it's a blank slate. I have that whole, that's my whole thing with horror movies is that I get the most scared by ones where the conceit could apply to me. Even if the conceit itself is crazy and supernatural and and clearly doesn't exist. I am way more scared if it's like, yeah, could like, in the world of that movie, my apartment is included in the number of apartments that could be like broken, broken into. <laughs> I know. Was Liv I Tyler like, in any yeah. other horror movies? Um, because there's not that I can think. Of. I feel like no, and there's something to be said for like just killing it on your one horror outing. Like, yeah, man, I she rules she does a good this. job. Yeah, and she had been on hiatus after having a child, and um, but then this was kind of her return in some ways, uh, post Lord of the Rings and everything. And, uh, yeah. And she liked this. She, I mean, she really liked the script is why she did it. And then she, uh, and then she, um, 
uh, said in later interviews that this was one that it was basically like the most uh, uh, traumatic like, shoot she ever did. <laughs> not because not because of the uh, um, the movie or the director or anything, but just the content. You yeah. know, like acting this is really difficult. It's hard. Yeah, man. And so it's and it just. It, like there's no there's no refuge and I get like there's that scene where she she finds the CB radio and uh and a voice doesn't appear on the other end until like like she has all this time with it she's like on it for like a minute and she's getting nothing and nothing and nothing and nothing and then right when the person comes in that's when the person says hello and then they smash it and it's Uh. like and that's the thing is it's almost taunting you you know what I mean that's the thing is there is never a plausible means of escape uh for these characters ever even when Dennis from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia shows up and uh it's like the the killer's toy like they know that um they know that Scott Speedman has a gun and they know that he's got an itchy trigger finger. So they're just going to let him go and do, you know, like let him take care of this guy, which he does. And it's just, it's all taunting and cruel. Like there's never a moment where they, and that, I guess that was what got me was I think a lot of times in these kind of movies, like I think about a movie like uh, Wolf Creek, the Australian outback horror movie, which is pretty good. Um, there's Head so many, yeah, there's like so many moments of uh, potential escape in that movie where you, you where you kind of like are filled with hope for the characters. Uh, in this movie, there's none of that. It's kind of a hopeless movie throughout. And I think that speaks to Bertino's later work. He's a very, very pitch black director with no sense of humor, which um, <laughs> which to me, like there's not a fucking moment of levity in The Strangers, which is fine. It's only it's only 90 minutes. But um, but he made the movie The Dark and the Wicked, which came out uh, last year, which was good. But again, it's just a fucking miserable watch um it's it's they're all better though he also did the movie the monster with zoe kazan which i remember not i did not really love enjoying. that <laughs> yeah i didn't either and then also that was part did... of my 31 days last year i think oh nice Maybe. He also did a movie called Mockingbird that I don't think was ever really properly released, but it was on Netflix some years ago and I watched it. It's and like it's... the second Hunger Games book. <laughs> well, I, no, no, that's, that's... Mocking Jay. Sorry, I haven't yeah, read them. It's no, fine. This... Mockingbird... He didn't adapt them. Mockingbird is awful. It is like so fucking nasty. And he was clearly trying to sort of one up the cruelty um, with Mockingbird. Like it, Mockingbird literally opens with like a 10 year old kid getting shot. So it's like really nasty. And um, yeah, it doesn't really work, but he he rebounded a bit, I think, with Dark and the Wicked, which to me is uh, a good movie, but but, uh, never one I would ever want to watch again. So um, so yeah, uh, let's move on to perhaps um, happier things or emptier things, should I say. Mel, what did you watch today, October 5th? Just before this recording, in fact. So pardon if my thoughts are scattered. This is going to have to be the case for these episodes. We will have watched the day's movie (laughs) shortly before recording the week's episode. So fresh in my mind Mm -hmm. is David Pryor's 2020, although filmed in 2017, uh, movie The Empty Man, which I did not know until right before I went to watch it. It is two hours and 17 minutes long. (laughs) I was like, Randall. (laughs) I should have warned you. Um, Yeah, so... I knew nothing about this film. I think like a lot of people, I had only seen this very intriguing shot of a man sitting in a cave or a man standing in a cave, shining a flashlight on a real fucked up skeleton looking thing that has like crazy too many spindly fingers and arms. It looks a little bigger than maybe a normal human. Um, I was, I was really enraptured by that image. I wanted to know what this movie was about. Um, This movie ultimately ended up being a disappointment to me. I do think 
that there are moments flickers of like really scary imagery and like sound and um you know there's a moment where the the protagonist the detective discovers like five kids that have hanged themselves under a bridge that's like really affecting there's a moment where he's observing a cult go around a fire and then all of a sudden they become really silent and they yeah. like move in this in this crazy way that looks like a like a murmuration of starlings that we saw earlier and they kind of step towards him in unison and, and that's really freaky yeah that was a cool moment um I mean, there's some uh, there's some decent uh, culty, scary content. Um, I, I I think the acting isn't all there. It's, it's pretty sloppy. It should not be two hours and seventeen <laughs> minutes long. My God. And I, you know, I hesitate to even bring up this comparison as a negative because I know you're going to give me shit for it. And I do need to rewatch this movie. So I might not even be accurate, but it reminded me of my complaints about Midsommar, which is that it it was more pastiche. It was more cool culty things that a director wanted to weave together than it was anything with a unified sense of purpose. I don't think this director actually sat down and wrote the cult handbook. I think he just had a a lot of cool lines and cool conceits that he wanted to work into the film. And then it it came out in this like kind of slipshod version where not a lot of the doctrines are clear or mesh with each other. Um, The idea of like, you know, a sort of great old one, if you want to use Lovecraftian terms, communicating through an empty vessel and having a cult worship that is interesting. I think that could have been done in a neater way. Um, The final twist I I saw coming, like, I think there was just Mm -hmm. too much loaded into this weird ex-cops experience of life that made it pretty obvious that like not everything was was completely on board with reality there um there's just too much going on and the acting isn't good enough to sustain it and the skeleton doesn't even really come back in fact (laughs) the portrayal of the i was gonna say as this like shrouded figure with regular ass hands is like not (laughs) that's scary and i i didn't make sense that that is the embodiment of the skeleton like what's going on here um it is kind of cool when it like reverse vomits itself into the into the detective at one point and there is some tentacular action going on but um this one left me kind of cold for a two hour 17 minute endeavor would you Um, say it left you empty yeah, I think that joke's been made by the critics, but I, it did leave me feeling rather hollow inside. Next, I will watch Hollow Man. <laughs> I saw um, Hollow Man on a date. Oh, that's not a good. Eh, it went, went well, I guess. <laughs> we were we were young. We didn't okay. have we didn't You're have strong a good expectations. Time. I, I just want to see I just want to see Kevin Bacon. Um, so yeah, Empty Man is is interesting the thing about that movie well first off midsummer i have a direct rebuttal to uh yeah, your complaint but i will go. not but I, no 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 i'm biting my tongue maybe i'm gonna maybe, see it again maybe you could watch it later this month and we could have a discussion but we'll see um so empty man is a movie that i watched so wait i guess are you are you aware of like the fact that this movie was initially scuttled off into theaters. Nobody yeah. really paid attention to it. It got no- uh, it Well, it got, got really negative feedback it at got, screenings and they were like, yeah. we're not even gonna fucking mess with it. But the reason people are talking about it, it like had a word of mouth sort mm-hmm. of revival. Did you, th- you, were you aware of sort of like 
the fans sort of brought this one into the mainstream. Yeah. Um, I, there's I think a big I was thing on Twitter. Underdog status. And, and again, that's why I kind of, I was, I was like, I saw this crazy screw, this still of the skeleton. And I know that people fought for it. So I was, I was interested. Yeah. Cause that's the thing was I watched it um, back in January when it first came out because my friend Brett, saw it in the theaters he saw it in like the one theater it was playing in new york and uh he and he said it was pretty good like and i was like oh and i one day i felt like watching a new horror movie i threw it i rented it and i threw it on and i thought it was pretty good i actually brought up my letterbox review from back then um which is i think slightly more positive than yours but the thing is the movie didn't stick with me because i'm looking at this mm-hmm. you know eight seven eight months later uh, I watched it on January 3rd. I said, overlong and overwrought, but this one will surprise you. Pryor has a POV, at least, both visually and sonically. The Empty Man feels like disposable mid-tier Hollywood horror in its early going, but it spins its mumbo-jumbo into something twisty and disquieting as it unfolds. And I said, James Badgedale is a hunk. That's the lead, because he is. Of a hunk. I mean, he well, is look hunky. look at this guy. Look at this guy. <laughs> um, so... Also, I, uh, the uh, the written in blood of the Empty Man made me do it. It's so lame. Like, aren't, we, aren't we past this... But that's the thing is I was pretty shocked when it's people started like losing their minds over it like on Twitter where it was like having this whole revival like how could Hollywood overlook the empty man I'm just like it was fine like it's like a three star you know it's like like I thought it was pretty good and I love a good original horror movie like that's the thing it's nice to see an original horror movie get some love so I I, you know I I give it that but I I always get annoyed when people uh, take something that is more or less mediocre and act like it's the greatest thing they've ever seen, um, which happens a lot online. So, um, so yeah, I guess that's like my ongoing, I think perhaps some of the, I think the overwhelming enthusiasm for the movie, I'm glad it had that. And hopefully that means more original horror, but I think my reaction to, or my annoyance with some of the hyperbole around that movie perhaps dimmed my (laughs) memory of it a little bit. Uh, We also get a Mr. Owen Teague in that movie, Baby Owen. Okay, I thought, yes, I thought so. And briefly he is in it. Um, I know he's only in a little bit because it was filmed so long ago. He wasn't like a big name yet. I know. Um, When I, when I interviewed him, because it was like, I interviewed him like right after I watched it, like in January about the stand. And I was like, I was like, I was like, when did you film The Empty Man? Like, and then he just goes, God, like 2016, you know? 2017 is the answer. Yeah, yeah. So he, um, he, was just, he was like laughing because he's like, I, he goes, I don't know what's up with that movie. It's like all he said. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah me neither. No, nobody, nobody had come around to it at that point. I was just like, that's all. I go, I watched it. I thought it was pretty good. He goes, cool. And we like just moved on. So. I'll be interested to hop on the Discord. I know some people had some thoughts after after watching it. We are kind of trying to keep up with, with Discord chats as the month moves on too. So come join us if you yes, have the Patreon please come level chat where you with can us. do that. Um, what was that? I was going to just get, like, they can't all be winners, right? They, I had to watch one that I didn't think was, like, really phenomenal this week. Um, and The Fog yeah. and The Empty Man were, unfortunately, my, my bottom two. Um, yeah. I was so impressed with the other three that it, it sort of had to happen. Um, yeah. I, I'd be willing to listen to defenses of, of The Empty Man, um, but, you know, listen but not entertain for too long. <laughs> Uh, Randall, what movie I'm did done you watch you. just before we started recording? As I made a, a stewed lemongrass chicken dish tonight, I Good. watched what? Hostel 3. <laughs> I can guarantee you that nobody has ever Please said that. Please tell the story before. behind why you initially wanted to watch Hostel 3. 
I chose Hostel 3 because I, for some reason, had been living under the impression that it was directed by Ty West, director of uh, The Innkeepers and House of the Devil. And And uh, star of your next. (laughs) And star of the shining star of your next. Uh, Turns out that wasn't the case. Uh, I was there when I think it was Mike (laughs) was like, no, Ty West didn't direct that. What are you talking about? Ty West directed Cabin Fever 2, Spring Fever. Uh, That that was because I knew he was like a hired gun on some, you know, Eli like Roth. some, yeah, like some Eli Roth movie yeah. I knew. And so I, I mistakenly assumed, or I guess I just always thought it was Hostel 3. So, uh, so I chose that, <laughs> put it on the list without double checking. And, uh, and then I, I found out that it was directed not by Ty West, but Scott Spiegel. But to your credit, um, when you found this out, you were like, oh, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, proceeded to watch it anyway. I mean, it's not like I necessarily thought like Ty West was going to give me a brilliant third hostile movie, but uh, (laughs) but it probably would have been better than this one by Scott Spiegel. Uh, Although Spiegel's more of an actor than a director. I was looking up some of his uh, his credits here and um, he's directed movies such as Intruder, 1989's Intruder. Uh, 1992's I'm the intruder. I was born in 89. (laughs) I intruded on the world. (laughs) Uh, well, then 92 is also about you. It's called The Nut House. Oh, wow. Thanks, Rich. <laughs> uh, he, but I guess the biggest one he directed otherwise was From Dust Till Dawn 2, Texas Blood Money. Uh, so there's that. <laughs> and uh, that, but love the original. <laughs> but he was an executive producer on Hostel and Hostel Part 2. So he okay. at least. He's well acquainted with He's franchise. well acquainted. And uh, Randall, what was this movie like? <laughs> this movie, I could talk about Scott Spiegel all day. Um, so. This movie was, it's interesting. We were joking that it was going to be the worst for you. It was like all animals. They only torture animals oh God. in this one. <laughs> if they did, I would be in, I would be in rough shape. But no, this was, uh, this movie was, was fine. Um, I think that it, it, it hews pretty close to the hostile template. Have you seen any of the hostels? Oh yeah. I think I've okay. seen one and two. God. Okay. What did you think about them? I watched them at a time in my life when I was around people who were super interested in defending them as a new art form. Um, Especially again, like post 9-11, like there there were arguments to be made about um, fear of of foreigners, fear of traveling. Um, People were were tapping into this sort of like academic ease interpretation (laughs) of these these movies which are fairly silly torture porn when you get yeah. right down to it not that i'm one to deny any close reading of anything but um i, I saw the first one and was upset by it i don't know like i, I don't really remember much <laughs> i remember actually the starkest scene in my memory is the woman who gets her eye blow torched out killing herself because yeah, yeah. he is no longer she lost her beautiful. eye He's she no like, longer sees beautiful. a reflection and is like Oh, that's it. I'm going to call it. Like, I'm a monster. They've just escaped from the torture dungeon, but yeah, I don't, whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I hear you. Forgettable. But when they came out, people were freaking out. It was like, this is the new thing to watch if you think you can handle it, right? Like, yeah. And it was, I think it was the idea of like, and the thing about Eli Roth is you, I have to give him, I personally have, I can't say you because everybody's different, but it's like, I have to give him credit because I think 
especially watching Hostel 3, because no kill or prosthetic or anything in Hostel 3 is as memorable as anything in the first two. Whether you think the movies are good or bad, mm-hmm. you have to admit that the the girl's fucking eyeball dangling out of her head and then yeah. him cutting cutting it with a pair of scissors and the goo spraying everywhere. Oh. It's like, like that's, that's good fucking practice. There's a good effects, uh, Achilles man. tendon snip in that one yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, and that's a big thing. I wrote down sort of um, what I remember about the Hostel movies are sort of these uh, iconic images. Uh, these, these moments of of like eye eye piercing gore that um were clearly very fussed over you know there's a shot in part two where you kind of just uh the the camera actually just like pans into a torture room and you can see just the bottom half of this person has been basically dissected and torn apart and it's just a still uh person like i don't know i can't remember if the person's alive or not but and then you just have this man who is essentially just operating on this these desiccated legs and i remember that being a really striking image that was clearly fussed over and actually and fun uh i believe it's the director of cannibal holocaust uh who is the uh the guy who that's his cameo that'd be cool but we can't trust you about directors of anything now because you keep oh i know ty west did everything I know. So I have to say, Mr. Spiegel did not, he, there's a couple neat kills in this, but there's nothing that reaches that sense of, of, of uh, ingenuity that I can Mm. give Eli Roth credit for. And I think that's what you can pretty much only give Eli Roth credit (laughs) for. And I, I think what drew me to wonderful performance in death proof. He's better in Death Proof than he is in Inglorious Bastards. He's so bad in Inglorious Bastards that it makes me mad, but I still love that movie. Uh, But the thing about I, I remember finding the acad- academi- uh, I was academiaizing of um, Hostel to be fascinating as well. I was in college at the time and uh, a friend of mine who basically, you know, his his whole thrust was he he liked to reinterpret works through a queer lens. And he was watching, Host- I watched Hostel with him just for fun. And he had an entire reading of that movie that was essentially about, uh, you know, straight, like straight dudes, uh, uh, struggling with their own sexuality and viewing the you know the the gay man as a monster because the 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 killer in the first hostel is very effeminate he's lecherous and he's lecherous yeah, and effeminate and he eating touches his the salad kids. with his hands yeah and he's like touching the kids You're right leg. there's a lot of memorable imagery <laughs> like it's all coming back to me yeah yeah and like and you know and i think and the the sensitive boy in the first movie like he's not as uh sexually you know uh what's the word i'm looking for adventurous as his friends are and so you know my friend laramie was essentially just kind of like he's gay obviously <laughs> you know what i mean so and then he's like but then the reason he is repelled so much by this killer is uh is not um, because, because the guy is a killer <laughs> i know it's because of his suppressed homosexuality but then the twist is that he does go home with the guy you know and again it's he was reaching a little bit but then is murdered by him you know and that's the that's kind of the the fear of the of the homosexual was something that he was writing about and um which was interesting to me and so i guess like that almost made me enjoy hostile more was uh viewing it through that lens but um because i just think and that and then also the post 9 11 stuff which i was thinking a lot about which was the way people interpreted the first one was the fear of foreigners it was the idea of these kids backpacking getting um and then essentially disappearing which has happened to people well, and also you know that the and, world wanted to torture americans specifically yes, you get a yeah. higher price if you yep 
get an American. 100%. And the second movie, um, you know, what I, what I do like is the evolution from first to third movie, because I think it mirrors in some ways the evolution of American sentiment. Um, I think, you know, when the second one came out, I believe it was around 2007, uh, there was, you know, in that movie, we actually see the perspective of one of the people who has paid uh, to torture one of the girls who is one of the leads in the movie. And he is an American. And we get this scene where we get this question of kind of like, well, maybe we're monsters too, because I think, you know, during um, this was around the time, you know, like post Abu Ghraib, you know, like Mm -hmm. we were seeing these images of the torture we were inflicting on people overseas, uh, you know, and the idea that maybe we were bad guys in this war as well, <laughs> you know, like maybe like, cause I think it was so easy post nine 11 to think that we were the good guys in that war, you know, in the war uh, in Iraq, whereas, you know, and then near the end of Bush's presidency, a lot of the sentiment towards him began turning uh, because people started to see the real atrocities that we were committing over there. And I think that that movie sort of reflects that sentiment and we do get, um, you know, that character meets his end in a certain way as well. And then the third, I love how we're, yeah we were like supposed to be talking about hostel three and we're like well fuck hostel three let's talk about the first two <laughs> i'm about to get to hostel yeah. three because hostel three it basically uh keeps pushing that idea because we're not even in we're not even overseas anymore hostel three takes place in las vegas and um you know in the first two movies we're introduced to this thing called the elite hunting club and like what the thing ultimately is that we learn at the end of the first movie is rich people pay to kill and torture you know americans or Mm -hmm. you know just not even just americans but are they americans in the third one or are they yeah well oh the funny thing is i feel like it opens with sort of a wry commentary Mm -hmm. because it opens with these two russians in a room together and this uh they meet up with this american kid and he's really shy and whatever and then you think that they're going to get him. And then of course it turns out to be the other way around Uh and he drugs them and then locks them up and he ends up being, you know, the bad guy. So it's an inversion of that. It's like the Americans are the bad guys here. The Europeans are, are the, they just knew they couldn't do it the other way anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, it kind of, to me serves as a a precursor to the purge franchise because Mm -hmm. the, what the purge franchise has leaned so much into that I love about these movies is that it just turns uh, millionaires and, and the rich into these grotesque cartoons who just love to watch poor people suffer and i think that is very good (laughs) commentary on the way things exist these days and um and that's actually what hostel three like sort of uh uh, pushes, uh, you know, leading us from one and two, where we're getting these smaller portraits. Here, the world opens up a little bit, and we see that uh, there are actually stage shows. Like, you know, um, there's a glass wall, and you can see inside this torture chamber. And there is, uh, and then there is this like smoking room with men in jackets sipping cocktails, watching people get their faces cut off. You know, it's very on the nose and very silly. And, and like women with their boobs out, like dressed like Hooters waitresses and stuff, are like serving them drinks as this is all happening so and you know and the rich people are of course like just don't tell anyone what goes on here honey and you'll have a job for the rest yeah like there's a scene where they like cut off a guy's face and the doctor like shows everyone how cleanly he cut off the skin of his face and then everybody politely claps you know and I like love that it was actually really clever to me and uh but you know it's not I think what I like about it is there's uh, 
it doesn't try to push it further than that. There's no pretensions towards like a twisted morality. There's no larger mythos here, really. It's just sick, rich fucks, you know? <laughs> they like flexing their power. It's, I, be, I, that'd be your movie, Sick Rich Fucks. Yeah, and that's what these people are. It's just, and I think it speaks more to, I think it reflects sort of the national mood in that it's not a distrust of foreigners anymore. It's a distrust of, of the elites. It's the, the distrust of the millionaires who run this country and the institutions. Uh, because, and you know, because in the end here, uh, well, the one thing that the hostile movies offer that a lot of that say a movie like The Strangers or Henry doesn't offer is revenge. Um, in every hostile movie, um, at least one of the bad guys gets his, like mm-hmm. he gets tortured. So you get that satisfaction of watching the hero turn the knife on the torturer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but what the third one captures as well, as I think they all have is, is no matter how many of these rich fucks you kill, uh, the institution is thriving. I mean, I think that's one thing they've shown is that the elite hunting club like exists overseas, mm-hmm. but now we see there's this Las Vegas chapter and, you know, they've got chapters everywhere. And so it, it does sort of play up that idea that like the institution exists like this thing is going to keep going, which I think is, you know, uh, relevant in today's age. But I think, um, but I think the other post 9-11 thing that perseveres, even through the third movie, which came out in 2011, is uh, the idea, though, that the persisting idea that the only way to combat violence or death is with violence and death. Uh, this very much continues that trope of it's not enough to just, um, you know, kill the person that tortured you. It's to torture them as well, you know, to kill them in the most brutal way possible, to inflict upon them what they inflicted upon you. you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing is it's a very, I think it really does speak to that, you know, um, eye for an eye kind of uh, mindset. American sensibility if if there ever was one. Yeah, exactly. uh, Sick rich fucks reminded me that a lot of people like to compare your next to ready or not and i just have to say that if you think ready or not is superior to your next that's bad taste and horror <laughs> i'd agree with that i i think i liked ready or not more than you but your next is leaps and bounds better <laughs> like cannot even uh yeah you could like fit a barn in between the two what's so, your so what's your rating of hostile three um on on a what kind Anything. of range Just here. dangling eyeballs one to five i don't know i mean uh two and a half stars probably i think for what Perfectly it is neutral okay yeah for what it is i think it works like i found it entertaining um but you know it really retains a lot of like uh eli roth's like bro sensibilities like they they order pros or i'm sorry sex workers from a uh from... <laughs> sorry i bitchily called you out oh please before. please always call me out i can take it uh, but the plot is real. We we deal with real issues. <laughs> but he Kip Pardue's character says he ordered um these sex workers from one eight hundred whores. Oh my god! <laughs> but I can't tell if he was making a joke or not. Like I rewound uh, it three times. I'm like, is he just joking? Because I don't even think the actor knew. He just says it like very straightforward. He's like, oh, one eight hundred whores. Um, and I'm just like, okay, uh, which made me laugh. But the uh, the script is really funny. Uh, there's one part where. Like one of this guy who's in a cage, uh, and he he gets he gets a one up on the guy who's like the prison guard, and and he uh, he's able to like shock him with the guy's cattle prod, and he goes, "I am so happy right now." Is the line, <laughs> and I was just like, "What fucking line is that?" And then the other one, it's it's a great horror movie thing. Uh, finally, a guy gets on the phone with nine one one, and he goes, "They go nine one one." He goes, "Yes, I need help. They're killing people." <laughs> 
I totally forgot to even mention this. One of the things that stood out to me of the empty man was that sometimes there would be these like spurts of dialogue that were so laughable that you could, you could just tell it wasn't like a, like a, you know, experienced tear horror movie. And the one that I remember is the cops are talking to the, a mother whose child has just gone missing and left a message in blood scrawled on the mirror and the yeah. head detective or the head cop is like, like, we will look into it. Have a good day. Like she's going to have a good day. Like, like, it's so stupid. I love it. Yeah. There's so much. Uh, yeah. There's just like, yeah. The, the dialogue in this is really silly. Um, one guy's one guy who's mad about, about being married. He's like marriage. It's a three ring circus. <laughs> I, was, I was cracking up. Are we in the 1920s? <laughs> yeah, man. But I was thinking about him just kind of like, why was there not really a market uh, for a movie like this? Because I believe it was straight to, you know, DVD or whatever. And uh, but it just made me think it's like, yeah, 2011. I mean, the whole kind of torture porn movement was really was really out by that point. Same I think year of, as, as your next. Yeah, same year now. as your next, okay. which and I think that's the thing was I think people were looking for more humor and or at least at this time they were looking for innovation like on in new types because that was your cabin in the woods came out, which impressed a lot of people in terms of merging humor and horror having like this fun twist at the end found footage was really big then I think people were into that sort of the innovation on that presentation and um and then yeah like you mentioned your next which is a it's a traditional slasher but it's elevated by uh you know I think millennial sensibilities but also I think uh, a really strong sense of humor and you know the hostile movies are funny in the way struggling to keep up but they're trying (laughs) yeah I mean it's it's just all bro humor it's like one hundred whores you know what i mean it's it's hundred whores <laughs> like there's just marriage it's is like, a three rings <laughs> like humor in this movie is this guy who's kind of like they're like hey you're married and he's like yeah my wife put on 30 pounds so you know it's stuff like that um it's just she's very a ringmaster bro. but she's also a bitch <laughs> And I mean, you know, the mo- movie knows what it's doing. It's it knows this guy's an asshole, but it's like, but at, at the same time, like that is the uh, that is sort of what stands in for humor. But you know, it's another movie where I think it's 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 trying to sort of have fun with, uh, you know, kind of uh, taking the piss out of these elites who love to watch people suffer or whatever. But it also lingers on these torture scenes yeah. to such a degree that it's kind of like, well, you know, your point's a little bit muddled there. It's like, you know, which is, I think, a, a similar thing you could say about um, uh, funny games. Uh, so, but that's, the, and then I think that's something that's better about the Purge movies is the Purge movies are, are mostly able to avoid that uh, through their depictions. And also those movies aren't rooted in torture. So I think it's like Hostel doesn't really have a lot of space to make uh, criticisms or satirical jabs <laughs> like that when the whole point of the movies is we watch them to watch people get tortured yeah. so uh you know so there's that um but i but i i said it's like a dumber version of the purge movies which and, and the purge movies are plenty dumb i'm not trying to act like they're super smart but i thoroughly thoroughly enjoy the purge movies so because i just love anything that's just basically like millionaires are awful and we need to guillotine all of them so parody satire okay um so uh <laughs> I'm just I, impressed that we we got through all how many was it eight nine including venom yeah <laughs> I can't no, count uh, it hasn't even been three hours yet so let's let's do our our um thematic linkages Did, yes. like you said you were excited you found some yeah um I'll start then I think like 
yeah. So I guess like the question is, are were there any intentional or unintentional themes mm. threading through these movies that we picked up on as we watched? And I sort of realized as I was watching that, and I've mentioned this word a few times, but the idea of inevitability mm-hmm. is uh, is I think what I was thinking about here. The idea that uh, evil exists and there's no vanquishing that, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, in Henry, this is an unknowable, uh, you know, um, sociopathic being who sort of floats through the world. Um, and in the end, he doesn't, you know, meet his end. He drives off into the, you know, into the night, whatever. Carnival of Souls, it's this idea about the inevitability of death and the idea that it's going to come, whether we like it or not. Uh, and then in uh, Gondrium, it's more so this is stretching a little bit, but I, there is, this is something that happens, I think in a lot of found footage movies because it, it lends itself to the handheld format, which is the idea that there's no escape, um, that you can take the door that initially was the exit and it no longer is the exit. You know, the world has changed. There is inevitability that you are stuck here. This is, this is, you know, you're the last place like you're ever going to visit. Um, and with the strangers, I think it's very similar to Henry in that regard. And then with Hostel, it's sort of the inevitability of the, uh, the ruling class will always mm-hmm. win no matter what. And, uh, and the ev- inevitability that violence begets violence. Um, and that they're, you know, and the, it's very much per- portrayed as something triumphant in the Hostel movies. Like, like, yes, we got them back, but there is something, I think if you, you know, take one step back and look at the environment in which it was made, there's something depressing about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I would expect them to forgive these people, but <laughs> say, you know what, we're good. Uh, let's just promise not to do that anymore. Um, so I guess like that idea of, ine- of inevitability um, and uh, is something that stuck with me that we are all racing towards an end that is unknowable and um and terrifying which is a horrible uh thing to take away from all of this because it's very depressing very that's that makes sense i mean yeah yeah, but i think it's 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 edifying though it's interesting it's something that that stood out to me so how about you anything that stood out i'm struggling to link all of them honestly i do think that for me the biggest thing that stood out just because i was so staggered by raw is the consequences of isolating the aberrant so Mm -hmm. In that one, we already talked about it. Um, you know, when we when we are so desperate to to other um, so that we fit in, like here is what happens. I think um, even in the fog, like the murderous mariners are lepers from a leper colony. They were they the ship was drowned because the people didn't want the uh, the ship was drowned. The ship was intentionally <laughs> sunk. Um, because the town didn't want lepers uh, coming coming to live with them. Um, and, you know, uh, Henry, we, we discussed as well, it was, you know, you are, made, you are made isolated and aberrant by the cruelty of others and it becomes an inescapable cycle when you isolate yeah. the aberrant and don't allow it to become accepted um, or become um, loved or, or shown any kind of, show any kind of sympathy towards it. Um, we, we enter these cycles of, of harm. Um, your next mate, like, maybe I can do a little bit of, of like twisting (laughs) here. Like she was, yeah. I mean, she was othered. She was, she's, first of all, she's the only foreigner. She's the only Australian. They make a point at the end to be like, you were supposed to be the witness because you had no connection to anybody. Yeah. We're supposed to not be touched. And you also had this like weird fucking crazy upbringing where you were on the survival compound (laughs) and sort of all she knows that by the end of the movie is, is how to kill and how to be, uh, she even the end of the final shot of the movie is so funny. So yeah, great. it's so good. Um, but so 
you know, maybe in that case, isolating the aberrant, um, well, also he was the family isolated its aberrant members so that they got so worked up. They had to kill the rest of the family. I don't know, whatever I'm stretching now, but um, <laughs> and I don't know what to do with the empty man. I can't really fit it in with the rest of these. Sure. Um, there's a cult in it. They're but, not always going to align. Yeah. I think every week, cause I'm, I'm definitely not choosing them with the idea that they Same. would blank, but I, I just think it could be like whatever threads we can find, I think would be fun. Yeah. So, um, so that's fun. Lots of cool, um, badass women in mine too. Yeah. Nice. I think maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, especially in Henry. I'm just kidding. Um, she's, she's really good in Henry. I love her so much, but it is sad though, too. When you mentioned like the idea of not allowing like people not having a place to be accepted or to be loved. And, you know, of course, darkness is going to fester for those people. Um, but that's just one of the things I wrote about Henry was just like, love will not save him. Like he is well beyond that yeah, at that point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when you have festered that deeply, cause at the, that's like one of the last things she says, I love you. And he says, I love you too. I guess, says, you know, I, oh, I guess I love you too. Yeah. And then um, he, and then, but they both need to fulfill their roles. She needs to be a victim and he needs to be a killer. Yeah. Yeah. It's and like, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like, there's no that, other end for either of them. Exactly. Which is it's, and that's that inevitability too, is there is no other, like there's no escape. There's nothing else for these people. This is where they are. So um, we'll wrap things up uh, with a lightning round. Okay. Um, we're going to go through our movies of the week and we'll say, we'll answer them as such. So best movie uh, of the five that you watched. I think I know the answer to yours. Yeah. Mine's going to be raw. Yeah. For me, let me, let me think one second. Grave, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if I'm, I really liked, uh, I, I mean, I liked all of them. I think I really like, I think if I'm thinking about like, what's not leaving my head, um, it's like really hard for me to choose. Uh, probably Henry, uh, mm-hmm. just because I think it's it's one that has challenged me the most. You yeah. know what I mean? And that, I like horror that challenges me. I like horror that makes me think. Um, so, okay. Worst movie you watched? Empty Man. Sorry, yeah. Empty Man. It's not <laughs> yeah. even like it was that bad. It's also right. just like I was trying to get ready for this podcast and I could not believe how long it was. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, my worst is Hostel 3. No surprise there. Although, again, two and a half, two and a half out of five could be worse. Uh, best performance of everything that you saw. I, I got to give it to, I'm going to butcher the name again, um, Garance Marillier, uh in Raw. I think she is incredible. She is also in uh, Titan. So I'm looking forward to seeing her in that. I just, I, I mean, the way that she screams and cries in the movie is so uh is so real like it is just not flattering for her you know it's mm-hmm. not attractive and the way she gives in even to her to her lust and when she's like dancing in front of a mirror there's just always something so um one could even say raw about the portrayal um i just think it's it's so clumsy and elegant in its clumsiness with how how real she is able to make that character what about yeah. you um, I think mine's got to be Michael Rooker in, uh, in Henry. I think he's so excellent and just really terrifying. And it's such a perfect role for him. But what I just keep marveling about, I might've said this to you too. And I wrote it on Letterboxd after, but I'm just like, you watch that movie and you're just like, that dude's in fucking Marvel movies now. <laughs> yeah. 
He's the dude who goes, I'm Mary Poppins, bitch. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's like, what a fucking career, man. Like, I don't know. I love Michael Rooker. And when we interviewed Glenn Mazzara, um, for the, for the losers club to talk about the dark tower pilot, which Michael Rooker is in, um, uh, he talks about how Michael Rooker got him into transcendental meditation. And so I'm just oh like God. imagining Michael Rooker doing transcendental meditation. He I seems love like a it. cool guy. Oh yeah. Although it sounds like I was reading um, on the set of Henry, he was one of those actors who would always be in character. Yeah. And his so, wife didn't even tell him that she was pregnant until after filming wrapped. Cause he yeah. Was so Cause he was so creepy. intense. <laughs> yeah. Which is, uh, but Hey, turned it, turned into a great performance. Um, okay. Next question. Uh, best kill. We don't worst before, but I guess it's kind of mean spirited to do worst performance. So oh, we right. Can, we, we can, can do worse. Oh, we can do worst performance. Uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to think we can do funny ones like you, um, or let me see. Oh yeah. Okay. The guy in carnival of souls who plays like the horny guy, uh, <laughs> he was, he was really bad, but it's, it almost works like in that yeah, sort of he's like in, so bad that it's yes surreal. It's, <laughs> like, yeah, that it's surreal, which I kind of love when that happens in movies, like where where a character can be really shitty and that's okay, or an actor yeah. can be really shitty and it's okay because it makes the movie weirder. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love when that happens. So so yeah. So I'm being me, lighthearted it's, it's, with it. Still the cop and empty man. And I just remembered another one of his lines where he's talking to the, the main character and it's just like, you know, these murders, you're never gonna solve them. You can't indict the cosmos. <laughs> God damn. We could just I mean, worse- maybe he's trying his best with the material he's given, but like that, it's bad. <laughs> well, maybe we can do instead of worst actor, next time we can do like worst line of dialogue or something. Or something. Um, or something. Yeah. Uh okay, best kill or scene. Best so killer be scene. I added or scene because I just want to keep harping on Raw. The scene where she <laughs> goes ham on her sister's severed finger was really hard to watch but like as the music kicks in you start or at least I started to do that shift from like body horror to body wonder and you just know that it's so enjoyable to her character that you that you overcome your own revulsion and you're like I guess it looks pretty fucking good (laughs) I I thought that scene was was great um for this, I would go with uh, Gondium. There's a sequence, I'm not going to spoil it uh, too much, but there's a sequence where a woman is in a very large empty room with um, a figure that is thoroughly not still until, well, I don't want to describe the figure because that's part okay. of what's scary about it, but it basically uh, is completely still until it's not. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's a very long nerve shredding sequence um, that I think is incredibly effective. So, uh, and it's, yeah, it's near the the last 20 minutes of the movie. It's very good. So, okay. Next one, uh, most frightening or disturbing uh, if different from your best. Right. So here's say? where I would put Henry. I, I think I found Henry to be the most disturbing or frightening thing that I watched this week. Uh, more so than raw, although raw is like just just touch something more relevant to my existence. Maybe um, I thought Henry just just really um, you know um, upset me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Henry's up there for me too. I mean, honestly, I mean, when I think about what disturbed me the most, definitely Henry. But but I think in terms of 
and again, I, I'm cheating a little because I'm just basically saying like different, I was different types of scared mm-hmm. by the things I watched. And I think the most enjoyably scared I was where it was fun, like the strangers and Henry were movies that left me feeling despondent, you know, like f- very sad mm-hmm. uh, because they're movies about, you know, very tortured, sad things that have no meaning. And uh, whereas Gongium is, is a movie that was was scary in a very <laughs> yeah it's a haunted house movie and it's and to me it's an effective one um i there's a sequence that i keep thinking about that is scary but in a giddy way you know what i mean where it's mm-hmm. kind of like where i would want to watch it with somebody else just to see their reaction to this one moment and uh whether they laugh or whether they because i laughed a little bit at this moment but it also scared me and that's kind of what i love about it and it's is that there's a playfulness to it but that doesn't take away from how how gnarly it is so uh so yeah those will be our questions maybe we'll switch them up a little bit as we as we go through our weeks but um but yeah let's wrap it up by sharing our lists for uh this next coming week let me bring up my uh my notes here okay how do you want to do this you want to alternate go by day yeah yeah so on wednesday october 6th mel and i are both going to be watching one one cut cut of of the the dead Dead, which is available on shutter i think it's also on Amazon Prime, I oh, think. Okay. So, um, so yeah, we're going, both going to be watching that. What are you going to be watching on Thursday, October 7th? I'm going to be watching 2009's A Cult, which is by uh, director Koji Shiraishi. Um, he also did Naroi the Curse, Oh I yeah. Um, A Cult is on, the whole thing is on YouTube, everyone. So you oh, shit. watch it there. I think the translation is by the person who put it up on YouTube. So I don't know how official it is, but it is the version I'm going to have to watch. So cool. Yeah. You told me about this and I want to watch it too. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just sneak it in if I have time. <laughs> um, on Thursday, October 7th, I'll be watching Curse of Frankenstein, uh, the 1957 version. So that'll be my uh, little just hammer Just approved. Justo approved. And uh, yeah. So, okay. What are you going to be watching? on friday october 8th that's going to be my rewatch of the week although it is one that i that it's been so long i'm just looking forward to it that will be don't look now with the hot hot donald sutherland i've always wanted to see that movie um maybe i'll watch it later this month um i will be be watching on the eighth a real tonal shift here (laughs) yeah i i was thinking about what i wanted my rewatch to be and i'm like I was kind of scrolling through movies that were on the various streamers and I'm going to rewatch the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I have a lot of stories about um, and personal relationships to, but I have not watched in a very long time. You know what they say, give yourself over to infinite pleasure. (laughs) I'm very excited. What are you watching on Saturday, October 9th? I am going from Don't Look Now to They Look Like People, which I think should be a a title in itself. Don't Look Now, colon, They Look Like People. Um, (laughs) I don't know anything about They Look Like People. I just think the poster is really good. And I know that it's recommended by actually the same person who recommended a cult, Trevor Henderson on Twitter, the creator of Siren Head, um, who's who I'm always just fascinated by what he recommends, even though some of our tastes don't exactly line up. I always kind of like want to give it a shot um, because he's such kind of a horror icon of our times. So I'm, I'm excited to to watch. They look like people. What is Siren Head? You don't know what Siren Head is? It's like no. a cryptid that Trevor Henderson created. Um, he's slimy swamp ghost on Twitter, I think, and Letterboxd um, and, and elsewhere. It is like this giant creature that has like um, a set of, um, they look like, you know, the conical 
sirens and there's like a little mouth at the end of it. I'll send you some, some stuff. Um, there's been like a like a little short video game made after it. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a Siren Head movie at some point. Um, but he is an amazing, you would really like him, Randall. You should follow him because he does a lot of photo edits to make photos really subtly creepy with like a weird face or like a monster in there. Um, love, love Trevor. Can't get enough. Sounds spooky. I will, will definitely follow him. On, the ninth? Um, <laughs> on Saturday, October 9th. Uh, the first day my wife is back in town, I'll be watching <laughs> Leprechaun into Hood, and she's gonna be not so happy about that. Um, so why yeah, do you think? I, why do you think uh, you'll be she'll, you'll she'll be unhappy? <laughs> uh, let's just say that I actually I don't know maybe she'll think it's funny. Probably not. She's gonna be like, hey, let's hang it out and be like, can't gotta watch Leprechaun into Hood. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, this is this is actually also Justo Justin Gerber recommended, and he's gonna be guesting on the episode as a short little quickie interview at the end we're going to talk about the leprechaun franchise which he just watched in full i asked him which one i should watch he said leprechaun into hood so that's what i am doing um so i will not be present for that that uh interview but i hope you boys have a lovely quickie it'll be fun um sunday october 10th what are you watching i'm watching the same thing you are baby we're watching flatliners that's right i've never seen it me neither I know. I'm very excited. Uh, it's just some 80s hotness. And, Sandra Bullock, uh, am I right? No, I think it's Julia Roberts. Oh, shit. <laughs> She's great, too. Oh, That's come like on. bad. I shouldn't mix them up. <laughs> they just um, have red hair. <laughs> uh, no, I'm excited for Flatliners. I feel like it'll scratch the sort of... Um, uh, it's like I watched Sneakers recently, and that was really... That was like like just a really fun, nostalgic watch. And uh, even though like I've never seen it, it like reeks of nostalgia. And I have a feeling Flatliners will be similar. Um, so yeah, that's the original, not the remake with Ellen Page or Elliot Page. Um, okay, Monday, October 11th. What are you going to be watching? I'm going to be watching some new French extremity, Claire Denis' High Life with Robert Pattinson, some sci-fi horror. I am very excited. I watched Trouble Every Day last year and it like really fucked with me. Um, so I'm, I'm really into these French women directors right now. Hope I like it. Yeah, I saw High Life in the theater. It's, it's interesting. I'm very, very excited to hear your thoughts on it. I will be watching on Monday, October 11th, House or Houseu, uh, which is a 70s uh, kind of cult uh, movie that I've heard is extremely strange. It I've somehow never so seen it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I think it's right up my alley in terms of stuff that I'm I'm looking for right now. It's something I probably couldn't have watched when I was younger. I think it would have freaked me out too much or or confounded me too much. But I think I'm ready for it now. Um, and what are you going to be watching for uh, Tuesday, October 12th, right before we record? Well, as you already teased, and this is a recommendation straight from Randy, I will yes. be putting on Grave Encounters. I'm actually really I'm I'm I did this sort of intentionally because I I think this might really scare me (laughs) like um it seems kind of scary (laughs) I'm really excited to see how you feel about it uh positive or negative I I I I'm very into this movie and I think one of the reasons I'm into it is because I I felt like and I'm sure a lot of people feel this way because it's a Canadian movie. It was never a hit, a hit in the U.S. It was kind of a movie that built up some steam when it hit Netflix um, many years ago. Like probably I watched this probably back in like 2010 or mm-hmm. 2011. And it's a movie I came home one night and uh, at like midnight and I just wasn't tired. And I was like, I just want to watch something dumb. And I looked up straight uh, or I was looking up horror movies on Netflix and I saw Grave Encounters and I looked at the Rotten Tomato score and it was like, it wasn't great, but it mm-hmm. was like higher than a lot of the other ones. So I was like, I was like, I'll give this a shot. And that is a movie. And I think it had a lot to do with the circumstances of me watching it, but 
it gave me nightmares and movies never give me nightmares oh, shit. so Fuck, i'm fucked <laughs> well no we'll see i mean i it's like i think it hits people differently so i'm just excited to to th- hear what you think about it um on are you watching to- for your final one before we record tuesday um I'm going to be watching a newer movie. This one came out last year. It's called She Dies Tomorrow. Uh, I've heard I, good things. Yeah, I know it's 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 more um, psychological and it was written, I think, directed by Amy Simat, who I think also stars in it. Anyways, I think she's a big talent. I love her. She's in Year Next and um, in a lot of good stuff. And uh, yeah, I've, I, I, don't, I don't know a lot about this movie. I remember I wrote up some trailers for it back when I was at AV Club and it looked really cool, but I just never got around to it. So... So that's the one I'm going to be watching. I think we got a good mix here of uh, of things, different eras, different cultures, different uh, styles. And um, I think it's going to be a, a good discussion when we um, get to that next we week. So, yeah. So uh, I think this is a, a really fun uh, debut episode of our limited series podcast. And it's I think it's time to sign off with right. a uh, with a violent. See you, See you in hell. Hell. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>